right, we are back on the road to WrestleMania. This time, WrestleMania 17, the after party when the Monday Night War ended. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge. And back is Mr. Toxic Honesty himself, Pat Pat Mullen. How do you do, sir? I am so excited to be back. I'm very disappointed that I got to miss the last show, unfortunately, due to conflicts. And I miss Stuart Lang, who I love. But yes. we're here now, and we're going to you know, look at one of the probably most fondly remembered WrestleManias by people uh, because of its placement in time and what it was on it. Um, but not one of mine. Yeah, I think looking back on this show, I-, I think it's good grades from people. It's fond memories are artificially inflated by the fact that the WWE was writing very high at the time and with the benefit of hindsight as i said at the the intro it's the show at the end of the monday night war wwe standing high atop the mountain raising the flag with wcw shattered corpse um, lying in the ditch and you know plus it's also austin versus the rock too it's the one where austin turns it's tables ladders and chairs it's um one of the better Undertaker Triple H matches of that era, which is not a high bar to clear, but we'll get <laughs> to that. It's um, the Kurt Angle, Chris Jericho. Oh, um, sorry, sorry. The Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit. Uh, no, Kurt Angle, Stevie Richards at this point, but. <laughs> well, you know what? I was, th- I was thinking of the one before this, but yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite matches and one that you and I have talked about vis-a-vis, you know, what, what's your worker's main event. Um, Kern Angle, Chris Benoit. I mean, it it's the WWE really at the height of its powers, and it would be it, it's about where the boost the last booster off the shuttle comes off, and this thing goes into the far reaches of space. You know, it's gonna be years from now before before you start to see any kind of crack in the WWE armor, but and this is a topic for a different day. It, now the whole thing could shatter and it would it, I don't think it would matter because Saudi money, peacock money, et cetera, et cetera. But again, whole other topic. So this is it. This is like the last really great fondly remembered WrestleMania because after this, it's all, you know, it's all, yeah, they're fine. You know, it's your mileage may vary which ones you may like best. But I think this is almost, we're going to stop with 20, but this feels to me like the end of the story. Yeah, I mean, we, we chronologically want to just go through the first 20. I actually remember the next three a lot more fondly than I do this mm-hmm. one. And I think upon rewatches, I'll justify that too. But yeah, yeah, I, I, this is an interesting time period more so. And this show is kind of a, a microcosm of the whole thing like we talked about. What we haven't talked about up to this point, I want to transition to this period of history. We haven't really, over the course of the last two episodes of this series, there was something going on over in Atlanta uh, World Championship Wrestling, they started uh, Monday Night Nitro in 1995. They would start to attract um, not just Hogan and Savage and some other of the, of the 80s rock and wrestling ma- mainstays, but they were starting to attract some of the new generation guys, too. Uh, there were people who were burning out of the WWE, and they were going to WCW. By the same token, there were people who had been in WCW for a really long time, even going back to its days as uh, the NWA. And 
they were heading over to the WWE. So there was a lot of talent training going on. What we really haven't gotten into is the rise and fall of WCW. And you have to discuss it in order to understand the significance of this show. So we are going to get to WrestleMania 17 and everything that happened between 2000 and 17. But you have to, we have to acknowledge what was going on here. So somewhere in the 1995, um, Eric Bischoff is given permission to start his own Monday night show to go head-to-head competitive with WWE. This has been talked about to death. Uh, this has been documented in, in, in series and other documentaries and shoot interviews. And, it, you know, I, who, who hasn't talked about the significance of Monday Night Nitro? But I do want to acknowledge one aspect of it that I don't know how much gets really talked about. And that is how creating a second show made Monday Night Viewing for Wrestling destination television for a lot of people because nobody watched only one of those shows but i think everybody flipped between both yeah I had all my friends who were wrestling fans at the time which were a lot mm-hmm. um one maybe two was a concentrated viewer on raw versus nitro or nitro versus raw otherwise we were all doing that some of us if our dads were wrestling fans uh mm-hmm. nitro would run a replay at 11 that my dad would tape sometimes if I was staying with him at the time and I could watch both shows in full. Mm-hmm. So that way, if there was something I missed, I didn't miss it. I got to see it the next day. Um, you know, but there was a lot of, you know, flipping back and forth and those 15 minute time periods that during a show, they look at to see where the demos drop uh, based on old ratings tools. They don't really use anymore. were crucial when they would plot out shows week to week, especially for, Uh, More so Eric Bischoff than Vince, because Bischoff would look at those 15-minute windows of time Mm -hmm. and be like, okay, what's drawing my ratings away from them? Where am I losing them? And he would see maybe he would do a high, high number when it was an NWO in-ring segment, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to cut a promo to set something up for later in the show. And then on the flip side, on Raw, the next segment, they might have something going on with, like, Mankind and The Undertaker, and he would have the cruiserweights on, and he would lose a lot of demographics with that. and, and, you know, that happened on a regular basis, and he would try to plot his show around, okay, where am I losing the demos? Where am I winning the demos? Where can I afford to lose the demos? Where can I afford to bring them back? Nothing like having real-time data to um, do things with your show on the fly, to really respond to your audience's reaction or plan for the next show based on how the previous show did. What I'm getting to is that between there were two things happening around this time. One is again the real real time access of data and the ability to use it to plan out your shows, um, to draw in more audience uh, more audience interaction. But also, what WCW starts to do to to differentiate themselves from the WWE is the surprise attraction. Lex Luger shows up on the first episode of Nitro, um, things like that, and then. Months later, uh, Scott Hall not being able to become a main eventer in the WWE, not being able to make more money. You know, he infamously said, you can only make you can have friends, you can have money in this business, but you can't have both. He's like, well, I've already got friends. I'd like the money now. Um, and, you know, W and this Vince just not seeing him as a main event guy uh, in the long term. He's like, OK, well, I'm going to go over here for less days and more money. And that's what he did. But it's not, but they never just as the WWE historically would create vignettes a character and do a look at the introduction of razor ramon they did all of those 
uh, Miami Street uh, vignettes, and then he makes his in-ring debut, and he goes over a bunch of jobbers, and then eventually he's in, you know, long feud with Shawn Michaels and Diesel and Jeff Jarrett and whatnot. Here, he jumps the rail, cuts off a ring mid-match, and, <laughs> and basically says, hey, cut the crap. <laughs> We've had enough in, of you in the razor voice. Yeah, right. Not 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 in my Brooklyn Jewish voice, but you know he he's like, hey, Chico, you know. And then he says something, and it's memorable to this day because the trick with wrestling is is convincing an audience full of people who know it's fake that it might be real. And this asshole gets in the ring and says, "We're tired of your crap. We know what you're doing. We want you to stop. You want a war? You got one." And people are like, ah! you know. <laughs> like what is this for real because yes it's the early days of the internet this is 1996 um we're still on dial-up modems and aol discs <laughs> at this point <laughs> but there's still a lot of people that just like what, what if this is real what what if we know nothing about contract exclusivity and you know television deals and the wwe is really sending guys to go mess with wcw because they gave away the results of a gold dust match once wow <laughs> what what if that's real and we were into it man and and that just starts a whole fire because here's the thing, as, as you and I documented when we talked about the new generation episode, um, episodes 11, uh, the WrestleMania is 11 through 12, 11, 12 and 13 rather. The WWE had been struggling to figure out what its formula was going to be. Um, the Hogan era is gone. Every, you know, they, they were in the wake of the steroid trial and they just don't know what their product is. They still think they're trying to sell action figures to kids. They've seemed they seemingly miss the train when it came to what is the culture right now and how do we make use of it. They they were just not communicating to people and people were tuning out. And so it's not that WCW, I think, knew what the culture was and was able to respond to it so much as they were creating a product that legitimately was surprising people. And you yeah, didn't know they, what was going to happen next. They absolutely did not have any cultural awareness at this yeah. point in time. But what they did was modify their own product by using a lot of the also rams from the other product mm -hmm. and not trying to repackage them or disguise them or give them, you know, Scott Hall came back. He didn't come back as the diamond stud, which is right. the gimmick he had used in that same company, you know, six years prior before he made the jump to the WWF as Razor Ramon. He came in in anonymity. They did not address him by name. Mm -hmm. He used the Razor accent. And made thinly veiled allusions to coming from the WWF and people knowing who he was and why he was jumping the rail. And they used that as a capitalization where Bischoff's main thing at the time was he was looking at the WWF's product and seeing characters like T.L. Hopper and The Goon and, you know, more silly and outlandish type gimmicks. And Bischoff goes, I want to make this seem a lot more real. Yeah. And I think that's where we're going to have success. And and you you know you say the word real something Jim Cornette talks about all the time and I said it already I'm going to repeat it I'll probably repeat it a lot the trick with wrestling for success from the dawn of time till yesterday is convincing an audience full of people who know it's not real that it is when it isn't but you know <laughs> but when you create a situation where that people can really believe um, there's been a few throughout the years where. You know, and Jim Cornette's talked about this too, where it's just like, oh, we all know that the, all this is fake, but that was real. That one thing was real. None of it was. But, but when you but when you have that moment, that's where the money is made. And so um, 
so he comes over shortly after that. Kevin Nash tells everyone that uh, play is a that play is an adjective. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Smart. the adjective play. <laughs> play. Yep. Okay. Smart guy, but he that will live in infamy. I mean, like as a guy who's done a lot of public speaking via podcast. Yes, occasionally you say something stupid, but it happens. Um, but he he'll he'll never live that down. No. So yeah, he comes over. They challenge. Um, there now internally because we all know what happened. This leads to they they throw Eric Bischoff the table in uh, at the Great American Bash, and then at Bash of the Beats they do the six man with Sting and uh, Luger and Savage. But backstage, they don't know who the, they set up a third man thing, but they don't really know who the third man's going to be. Is it going to be Sting or is it going to be Hogan? Is it going to be somebody else? Can they get Bret Hart? Who knows? Can they, they get just Mabel? Know, they could get Mabel. Um, it was the whole idea was we're going to create this faction within WCW that's seeming like a hostile takeover from a group of outsiders. They just don't know who the third outsider is going to be. And then, um, as has been said famously in shoot interviews and podcasts, Hogan saw the money train leaving without him and went, wait, wait for baby. <laughs> and, and I also think to Hogan's credit, I think he had kind of a come to Jesus with himself and realized, you know, I'm not getting any younger and I'm not selling any more merchandise. There's no point in me being a good guy anymore because if I, if I, the whole point of being a good guy is to sell merchandise to children, yeah. to sell t-shirts, it's to sell dolls, it's to sell DVDs of yourself and pictures. And when you're not doing that anymore, because people have just lost interest, you might as well turn heel and see what, you know, what hay you can make of that. And, and so again, he, from a narrative standpoint, mm-hmm. he was the most logical conclusion to that if they couldn't yeah. get Brett, because who's more synonymous with this outside organization than the Hulk? I mean, you could have sold the same story with Sting, especially the way the mm-hmm. way that they did it. I can't remember if it was before or after this where uh, everyone starts to suspect Sting really did join the W, you know, and then they, they have... It was, it was after, but okay. I, from, from a, a sense standpoint, Hogan made the most sense. The most sense, 100% agree with you. But Hogan gets hit by a train or decides to stay home. The second best option, I think, was Sting because it was a guy who was solidly WCW. It was the one guy Vince could never get until it was well too late. you know. And if he turns on WCW, that's a story in and of itself. Yeah, I could see that. Um, but as history tells us, it's, it's Hogan. He does a great promo in there where basically it's, it's, it's the rocks promo essentially when he turns bad, it's the same damn promo. It's like, you all turned on me after I loved you for so long, you stink. And I'm going to, and I don't want to play with you anymore. Okay. You can stick it, brother. You can stick it, brother. And so the NWO is formed. I want to fast forward here because we could, there's a whole other podcast series in, in the rise and fall of the NWO that we're not going to do right now, but I do want to ad- address Something that I have said for a long time in you know in casual chats with people, the NWO storyline should have had a solid beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, the middle was Piper and Hogan. The end should have been Sting and Hogan, and that should have been it. Because yeah. everything that happens in this period between '96 and '98 is utterly fantastic, and it's the reason why they win. For what is it, 84 80, weeks in a row? 83 weeks. 83. That's the name of the podcast. 83 weeks in a row. They did because they actually told one of the best solid stories in the history of pro wrestling. They really did. Yeah. Um, the problem is everybody in that company got lizard brain 
and thought you can create an entirely other company out of this faction you created in the WCW. You can, we can make more shows of this. We can do it. It was the kind of like executive thinking that kills a lot of movie franchises where you don't really know what you have and you think you have more than you've got. Yeah. This is, this is essentially a great, great film that gets a needless sequel mm-hmm. with zero direction and understanding of the first movie as a whole. Correct. That is 110% correct. The Sting... Now, granted, they stumbled at the, at the finish line with Sting and Hogan with the whole Brett deal and the, you know, the, the fast count that wasn't a fast count and all of that, but by that point, the money had been made. So even if you even if you fall at the end, if you pick yourself up and you start a new story, um, and it's in any way decent, because really, what logically should have happened after that is kind of what did, but didn't. It was sort of a half-pregnant story with Hogan yeah. and uh, Kevin Nash. Um, it would have been fine if we had moved if we we had moved on from the NWO, split them, have them fight each other, and then ultimately break the whole thing up and just do away with it. Um, I think WCW creative wise doesn't have the problems that it does. Unfortunately, like I said, after Sting and Hogan, they just couldn't get away from this thing and they kept going back to it and back to it and back to it and back to it. And, you know, the idea of doing like NWO pay-per-views and having NWO have its own Monday night show and we'll move WC. Like this was all garbage, just garbage meant by people who would like seemingly on a cocaine binge going, "Ah, I don't know what we've got here, but we've got something to throw everything at the wall. It, it lacked it lacks a coherency when you stand back and look at the whole product um and you know people have broken this down into my new detail but i think you i think it, you can just simply say they ran the story for far longer than it needed to be and then you have the other problem and kevin nash has brought this up too and this is where i want you to kind of step in here and give some details while this is all going on um and you gotta remember corporate mergers take a long time mm. they, so this is years in the making, but where where it starts to matter is ninety eight, ninety nine, and that is AOL Time Warner uh, is merging, and there's talk behind the scenes of we want to streamline what this company is, we want to streamline what this entertainment product is, and we don't want live sports. And WCW was considered a live sport, and so even I mean I suppose had it been making a serious amount of money and the whole gosh the whole like corporate financial structure of wcw and what got into what ledger and, and lines of income is a whole other situation but apparently it's 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 a lot a lot of confusion and alchemy but the point that i'm trying to get to is that basically even if the even if vince russo was a creative genius and they didn't have the creative problems that they did i think the nails were going into the coffin regardless that wcw was not long for this world because at the end of the day the people who just cared about creating a streamlined company didn't want this or the braves or any of the other associated products anymore that's that's a big part of it um you know and you get into the aol time warner merger um and you talked about the revenue streams where one of the Mm -hmm. biggest things that hurt wcw as a whole was despite how profitable they were especially in that 97 98 Mm -hmm. year to date you know, fiscal calendar, a lot of their revenue stream was so oddly divided where VHS tapes that they sold at the time, which were a hot commodity, um, Mm -hmm. though that revenue did not get credited to WCW because it was released under the Turner Home Entertainment banner. So 
the same way they sold colorized versions of the Wizard of Oz on video cassette and things of that nature. That's where that revenue stream went to. It did not get any credit toward WCW's profitability. Um, so at that time, especially, you know, in the 90s, you and I remember the home video market was huge for pay-per-view yeah. sales and revenue. Sure. And now you're not getting, I don't know what the exact percentage would have been to result into it, but it's a significant revenue stream that's not being put into there. And at the same time, you're spending this money on a formula you've now created and seem to over-rely on where you're going to bring back X major star from the past or steal X major star from the other company to bring them in and pop your crowd and hotshot things. But after a while, it loses its appeal. We had, you know, Scott, we had, let's go, even going back to Hogan, you get, bring in Hogan, bring in Savage, bring in Piper, bring in Scott Hall, bring in Kevin Nash, bring in Bret Hart, bring in the Warrior. And at a certain point, the nostalgia trip and the love affair kind of ends. And it's like, okay, well, you're bringing this new guy in. What are you going to have him do? Yeah. And what they're also not doing is creating homegrown stars and talent. The only two guys who are really like true blue WCWs who were who were risen through the ranks, so to speak, and made stars were Goldberg and Diamond Dallas Page. Correct. And, you know, that's a huge thing. And later on, we'll get Booker T kind of in a late rise to the main event, which was very cool. But, you know, Booker and Page are the only guys at that real zenith period who are homegrown WCW talents made into main event stars and semi-household names. Sting had already been a top-level guy for WCW and never really drifted too far away from that. Right. Um, although he gets pushed down the card as the new guys come in at certain points. And, you know, I'm sure true blue WCW viewers didn't love that either. Um, but to go back to the corporate end of things, you have behind the scenes, there's madness running around as they don't have solid endings for conclusions to their storylines. And a lot of that is pointed towards Vince Russo, who made the jump from the WWF to WCW in October 99, but is sent home after a few months because the board of directors led by Harvey Schiller, who oversees this, they just don't like what they're seeing with the product where the ratings are consistently dropping week to week. And they're asking him, what are you doing? And the biggest problem with Russo's writing, and it's come from Eric Bischoff, from Kevin Sullivan, from a lot of people who are involved behind the scenes there, and in the WWF with Bruce Pritchard. Russo doesn't have conclusions or plan B's or step twos to anything he does. Yeah. He does something on TV to hotshot the crowd and there's no follow up to it or any momentum sustained from it. Cause he doesn't know what, what's next. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gonzo writing as opposed yes. to story driven writing. And if you don't know what gonzo writing is, it's just, it's, it's usually near, it's used, it's a term used in a, in a different form of film. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But um, it's essentially, it's a collection of action sequences. With yeah. Nothing really connecting them, as opposed to a narrative that has action beats. Right. And, you know, so he gets sent home, and they try to just do everything they can. They shuffle in Kevin Sullivan to booking. They try later on to bring Eric Bischoff in again after Eric had been sent home, because he was completely burnt out from having to do X amount of hours of live television plus pay-per-views that he he kind of didn't even ask for. He didn't ask for Thunder. They threw that at him. And so he's, he's overworked and overstressed and can't deal with dealing with the personalities and the corporate end of things. And he just goes home. He goes to Wyoming. He's like, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm done for now. Because they say to him, Eric, you're burnt out. You need rest. And they decide to hand over things to Vince Russo, which was a terrible idea in hindsight mm -hmm. without a creative filter or someone overseeing what he did. And then they try to bring Eric back in 2000 to work with Vince Russo to try to summarize and finalize things. 
Eric figures out that he really can't work with this guy. Russo, instead of gradual changes, wants to overhaul the whole show immediately and does so with the failed Nitro reboot where all champions are stripped and there's a whole thing and they try to do the Millionaire's Club versus New Blood Angle. And they're hemorrhaging money over this time because the writing is so incoherent. They're not creating new stars. The old stars who people do want to see are being marginalized. And it's a bad time. And at this time, with the money hemorrhaging, where WCW had been a consistently positive revenue stream from mid-96 through up to mid-99, the idea of this merger is happening where AOL and Time Warner are going to merge as two of the great big conglomerates of the time and streamline their business model together like Mark talked about. And the guy leading the charge on all this is an executive named Jamie Kellner. And even until late 2000, when things are finally rolling and things are going to be finalized into January of 2001, one of the big things that they don't want is WCW at this point in time, because Mark alluded, they don't want live sports. Your regular broadcasts of Atlanta Braves baseball and Atlanta Hawks basketball are not going to be things they do. They're going to have an NBA on TNT presence, but that's the only thing they want because the NBA is drawing ratings, but not Turner's own own team, the Hawks. So they're going to get rid of Atlanta Braves baseball. They're going to get rid of they're going to get rid of Hawks basketball, and they're going to do just TNT basketball where they have right. random teams in the limelight. Now, I want to just quick, um, I mean, people may not care about this, but I do find it interesting. At this time, you know, as you said, they create a second wrestling show called Thunder. And now they're looking at TBS and like, hey, get take, <laughs> take this new show that we just started on there. Take it off because we're going to rebrand TBS as a comedy station. And we're going to rebrand TNT as a drama station. And we're going to remove all of this other live sports or sports adjacent content. Yeah. After they had just christened the show, and I believe it was January 98 was the premiere episode of Thunder. Mm-hmm. Um, now, less than two years into its existence, they want to get rid of it. Right. And, um, you know, it just shows how quick the wheels turn and how, the, you know, the analogy has always been made that the WWF is a wrestling company. Mm-hmm. WCW is a wrestling company owned by a corporation that doesn't understand wrestling. Right. And that's largely true. And it, even more so now when you're getting the involvement of the AOL people and the Time Warner people. And again, Jamie Kellner is kind of always the the guy who was really adamant that WCW needs to go. It's also very important to note that Ted Turner and Vince McMahon have had this uh, love-hate relationship with each other. They have some history. We've talked about uh, Black Saturday, um, you know, and how that affected both Vince McMahon and and, uh, Ted Turner and all of that. Uh, Vince McMahon always talks about you know the infamous call that he got from Ted Turner. Hey Vince, I'm in the wrestling business, and Vince McMahon with his nose in the air for some odd reason, you white trash piece of, um, says, "Well, I'm in the sports entertainment business. Both of you get a room and never talk to anyone else again." <laughs> um, anyway, I've my issues with both of these men, but um, the point of that rant was that Ted Turner was a driving force behind WCW because he had a personal stake in it. He yeah, had a personal emotional stake in it. He, he did this- because. That WCW World Championship mm-hmm. Wrestling, when it was the name of a show produced by Georgia Championship Wrestling, was the highest rated show on his fledgling WTBS Superstation Network when it came around in the early 80s. And like and, with all corporate mergers, once once the new corporate overlords come in, they usually want to they usually want to throw everybody else out. Even you know, they throw them out with golden parachutes. It's not like any of these people land badly. But yeah. they definitely were like, and we're done with you, Kentucky Fried Wrestling owner. You're gone. Um, and so Ted Turner's out. With Here's your money. Turner's, leave. Yeah. And without your influence, without Ted Turner's influence on the maintenance of WCW 
there is no WCW. Right. Um, unless somebody in corporate thinks this is a viable business model, except that it wasn't at that time. Not at that time. And this is through the history of WCW that really Ted is the reason they stuck around for as long as they did and were able to get mm -hmm. to a successful point. Because there were network executives telling him, get rid of this. Get rid yeah. of this. Yeah, you during draw the RoboCop era. During the RoboCop era and midgets on a beach blowing things up during all yeah, of that. They, they wanted nothing to do with it and saw it as beneath them, which in a lot of ways it was, to be fair, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And it was still, a, you know, especially when it became the highest rated program that they had on both stations, TBS and TNT in 1998. Um, <clears throat> but now as we're nearing the end and the money's hemorrhaging and they don't have any plans and there's no direction and this guy's out, this guy's out. We can't, you know, Hogan's gone. This guy's gone, but we're still paying them. The thought is made just to, hey, we're going to buy out these contracts of these guys who are making this amount of money. We're going to sell the company, get rid of it. And that's when Eric Bischoff formed the media conglomerate at the time called Fusion Media Ventures, where he seemed to be the likely candidate to buy WCW. And there was a plan to rebrand it, keep certain guys there, give it a new start, a fresh start, you know, a fresh coat of paint, as they say. But um, it needed distribution. Distribution was key to any of this happening. And when the deal was going through at the last minute, Jamie Kellner said, OK, you've got the rings, you've got the name, you've got the trademarks, you've got the video library, which should have, should have kept that just for that, Eric. But mm. um, but you're not getting any programming time on these channels. And at that point, you don't have anything to distribute your product on. Your product is dead in the water Yep. because you have no advertised revenue. You have no way of getting this out to a mass audience. There's no point to having it for the most part. Um, without certain amounts of reach and money backing you. The video library itself was worthwhile, but when you're trying to launch the company and do this, it, the market's not there yet and not strong enough yet. It's time to pull out. He pulls out and somehow through legal channels, it's allowed for Vince McMahon to swoop in and buy the, uh, the, the withered corpse of WCW. And now as of March 26, 2001, he is the official owner of all things World Championship Wrestling. I want to ask you a question, Pat, as we transition from uh, the end of the Monday Night Wars into talking about the events of the year that led from WrestleMania 2000 to WrestleMania 17. We can move on uh, and actually get there. It's not a fair fight. You know, it's not a fair fight between WWE and WCW. WWE has one guy pushing forward. Um, and not everything WWE did during this era, during the Austin era was great from, you know, from early 98 into 2000, it's not all good. And Stuart and I talked about that at length, almost three hours talking about it. Um, but where they have a leg up is they don't have all of this corporate bric-a-brac going on in the background. Um, they there, have, there, are no, there are no standards and practices. Yeah. There are no financial people. It's, it's. But, Vince, there, Vince there's no you home. have a show one minute you don't have a show the next minute you know vince mcmahon's in charge vince mcmahon's not in charge none of that's happening yeah and i think we're, we're there's so much focus although on that these, didn't work out well for paul Heyman. well I, we do need to touch on ecw before before we totally move on but i i want to uh finish up this point you know the thing about the wwe good bad or indifferent is there was always one guy the buck stop was vince mcmahon and he wasn't going out and he wasn't leaving the company anytime soon yeah. And it was, and while they would put the company up for um, uh, for stock purchase, he still owned. He was still a majority stock owner. There was what a scam that was. It certainly was, <laughs> Ali. The point being that there was no back, there was no backstage turmoil in the WWE like there was with WCW. So even if WCW was writing, 
you know, Hemingway-esque literature, just the, the, the they're writing the wire of wrestling. You know, it, you still, what people need to understand about WCW is that sh unless you could convince the people in charge of uh, AOL Time Warner that it's a making money and be a worthwhile venture to keep around, it wasn't going to last. No. You know, um, that's that's the size of it. There are people who would argue, oh, well, if the creative was better, they would have kept it. No, 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 no. They decided they were done with this well before the rating started to tank on that yeah. show. And no one once, gave a once crap. This merger, once this yeah. merger started happening, the executives who are going to now be in charge as opposed mm -hmm. to Ted, wrestling's not something we're in. Right. Sorry, not and interested. So, and it, so it's not, it's not like they... They they may have been watching the show and going, why is this all happening? I don't understand it. But but they but they might have had the same reaction even if it was good television. Is my point. You know, and I think I think I think aside from just Ted, mm -hmm. the fact that this was the wheels really started rolling on this at the point when Eric was really burnt out and mm -hmm. kind of just at a total loss for everything, and they sent him home. And had he been there, and you know, and say they started rolling this in like late ninety, like mid to late ninety seven. Mm -hmm. There's a chance I think he can sell them on keeping this around because of this revenue stream, this revenue stream. This right. is what we're doing creatively here. I think there's a chance of that, but he's not there to sell that. All right. If you're, but if the if the machination is we're rebranding this entire wing of our company and we want it to be this, not that, then there's no keeping this even if it's successful. It's just think of it this way: um, the W, you know, the WWE right now has a deal with NBC, Comcast, NBC, Universal, Pornhub. And uh, they have their stuff on Peacock, right? And and there's always this talk behind the scenes, you know, in the internet boards or whatever that they, you know they're trying to make the company look as profitable on paper so that they can sell it. At the the best you could ever have hoped for, and in the alternate timeline where WCW is mad profitable going into you know going into 2001, is that they sell it to another company. They, you know, they sell off W, they don't sell it to the WWE. They sell it to a big company that can afford to buy this thing and can distribute it themselves. So like they sell it to Disney or something, you know, or they, they sell it to Sony, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, major media presence. Right. That's the only way this ever plays out. And that's what I mean by this wasn't really a fair fight. And, and I wanted to really drive that home because I think, Everyone focuses on the wrestling part of the Monday Night Wars, but the story is the, the the real interesting stuff is all of these you know corporate machinations. And again, everyone likes to focus on the creative, the bad creative, the Vince Russoification of of wrestling. Yeah, but I don't it, know how it, it much of that help. really matters. It didn't help, but it becomes mm -hmm. a minute point in the overall scheme yeah. of the AOL Time Warner merger and what the agenda was from the get go on that. Yeah. So at the same time that this is happening, there's a, there's another cultural thing going on in, in terms of wrestling, and that is, while the WC, while the WWE is growing and would reach heights to where it becomes, you know, the phrase often banded about is "too big to fail." The "too big to fail" era pr pr um, prologue starts kind of here with with WWE. But while that's happening, while all the air in wrestling, which I'm learning is very finite. Is going into the WWE and sucking it? it from everywhere else. And one of the one of the uh, groups that this affected was Paul Heyman's ECW. ECW was this rebel organization of castabouts and misfits that 
captured the imagination of a lot of hardcore wrestling fans. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, it was very punk rock in its presentation. It was it, ECW was the punk rock of this. If you yeah. know, WWF is a major label, WCW is a major label. This is the label putting out acts like Bad Brains and Minor Threat that has a, yeah. a groundswell of support. Yep, they were they were playing at the PWAC uh, yeah. while everyone else is you know playing at the Nassau Coliseum. Yeah, um, and people loved it that way. Yeah, um, they. They they are responsible for creating an aesthetic that both WCW and WWE would steal from them and make tons of money in doing so. Um, they would finally get a big break, but by the time they got their big break, it was it was too late. Everybody and had that's, left. <laughs> that's that's the beginning of the end. Is the TNN mm-hmm. deal, um, yeah. which essentially is negotiated on behalf of Vince McMahon because TNN wants to get into the wrestling business, right? And Vince is reticent to leave USA, which is a much more well-known network that he's had an established relationship with since 1983. I want to jump in real quick. Imagine the alternate universe, as I said before, where WCW is profitable and they're looking for a buyer and they get bought by Viacom, which owned TNN. Yeah. I mean, there you go. It could have been a very big change. But at the time, you know, Viacom, who was the parent company of TNN, they're looking to get into this wrestling business because they see Mm -hmm. the revenue it's generating and the ratings it's generating elsewhere. And they want to rebrand the Nashville Network, as it's called at the time, right. which is a very niche audience, into a more national presence because that's their their largest cable show uh, or excuse me, largest cable channel that accesses the most amount of broadcasting. Um, and you know they're they're known for their Dukes of Hazard and Dallas reruns at this point in time. So what they're trying to do is change that into a broad and broaden their audience on that scope and change it from. They wanted to change it to the National Network, which eventually they do. So they're trying to talk to Vince McMahon, whose contract is coming up with USA. and Ultimately becomes Spike, and it, be- and it becomes known for the Ultimate Fighter, UFC, right. and, and, and to a lesser degree, uh, Impact Wrestling. Right. And what they do is they, they talk, and Vince says, well, there's this other wrestling show out there, and you can see that it's not anywhere near as good as mine, but this will <laughs> draw you some solid ratings, and you don't even have to advertise it. And so the negotiations are broadened between TNN and Paul Heyman to do a weekly show for ECW on national cable television. And he agrees everything's going to be great. And right as soon as that agreement is struck, the WWF signs Taz, their world heavyweight champion, who had been the hottest act in the company for a good two years at this point. Mm-hmm. And the Dudley Boys, who are their world tag team champions, who have really been carrying that tag team division thoroughly, not afraid of getting heat and they carried that whole company. When you think about when you think about early ECW, it's Raven, Sandman, and Tommy Dreaver. When you second when you talk about second wave ECW, it's New Jack and the Dudleys. Well, uh, and, then and, Taz. and Taz. Yeah, yeah. And Taz. Um, and, and yeah, they, they were a huge part. If, if mm-hmm. Taz is the A side of the record, they're the B side of the record. Yeah. Um, with how much they did. And so they both immediately get negotiated with and stolen right as the show is going to debut on TNN. Mm-hmm. So now you've lost your two largest faces. Think, think of what would happen if, if Monday Night Raw was going to go at the air at this point in time. And uh, by the way, we're still in Rock and Austin over here, and you guys can just go on as it's. Yeah. And, you know, when you have a plethora of stars behind you, you can do that. ECW did not have such luck with that. ECW had their old stalwarts. They had the Tommy Dreamer. They had a returning Raven coming back from, you know, a couple of years of malignment in WCW. I think during but this period, Rob Van Dam is injured half the time. RVD gets injured and they lose their, again, biggest, brightest star who they've spent years cultivating and building. He breaks his, he breaks his ankle and he misses, you know, 
significant amount of time right in the middle of this thing where they're going to program him right. and their world champion Mike Awesome into their biggest pay-per-view match yet. And wheels fall off. Right. And Sabu speaking of Mike Awesome, he and speaking of Mike Awesome, he fucks off the WCW too. We'll get there. Yeah. Sabu leaves, who is maybe their most uh, ECW-esque performer and does always draw crowd interest. Sabu leaves out of dissatisfaction with Paul Heyman and payoffs and refuses to do a job the super crazy and leaves for XPW in California. WCW, meanwhile, seeing they're in peril, decides that they've had X amount of talents reach out to them about coming over from ECW because they're getting their paychecks bounced. One of them being Mike Awesome, Mike Alfonso, who's the ECW World Heavyweight Champion, who as ECW World Champion jumps over to WCW <laughs> on Nitro as a surprise. Right. And you have that happen. You have, uh, oh, geez, what was the other jump I'm thinking of at the time? Lance Storm, who is a guy they've pushed and moved and done all this stuff. He jumps to WCW because he's had three paychecks bounce on him, and he leaves. And people are leaving in droves. And ECW is not the talent-rich company that Turner has behind it or the WWF has. Where we're getting main events involving Just Incredible, Steve Carino, Balls Mahoney. And I'm not knocking any of those guys. But when you go from guys who have built and worked hard and had a nationally recognized reputation and presence, like a Taz, like a Rob Van Dam, like a Dudley Boys, and you go to these guys, it's a big drop-off. Right. And the interest doesn't stay. And how many times can you watch Tommy Dreamer lose a main event match? Like it, <laughs> at a certain point, it, it, it's a little repetitive and a little stale and you're not interested anymore. And I remember the Tommy, the Tommy Dreamer stuff almost mirrors the NWO in that it's another situation where no one knew how to end the story. Yeah. Tom, you know, and Tom, Tom, Tommy Dreamer's ridiculous thing of like, I never want to, I never want to beat Raven. I, right. As Luke Skywalker, I never want to blow up the no, Death Star. You, I just want to keep flying my X-Wing around. Even beyond that, he's in the main events pretty consistently because mm -hmm. he Unfortunately for Tommy, and I'm not saying this not, there's no interest in him from WWE or WCW. They they don't right. want this mildly overweight guy in a t-shirt and you know workout pants as their one of their stars. So he's there because he's safe for Paul to put in the main events and does repeatedly, mm -hmm. but he loses all the time. He just right. loses every fucking match he's in. Right. And it, it, I remember towards the end of ECW, like on TNN, even I was losing interest in the product, and I was a <laughs> diehard ECW fan. And I'm just like, this is painful to sit through on a Friday yeah. night. When I could be out, you know, doing whatever I want and I'm watching, you know, Tommy Dreamer lose a ladder match to Just Incredible that the results never end out in. Mm -hmm. And those last those last the last full year of ECW is 2000. It was horrible. Yeah, and I remember stopped, watching it. Yeah, they stopped operating in, in January of 2001. Mm -hmm. In January of 2001, they don't officially announce the closure of the company. But in February, Paul Heyman pops up randomly on a Monday Night Raw as a commentator and surprises the ECW locker room, who he's been telling for months he's negotiating a new TV deal for them and right. doing all these things. And ECW had gotten into such financial peril that they didn't even own their championships. Yeah. The championships and their likenesses and images were sold to Acclaim, the video game company who had made two ECW video games over the time period. And that's why when we have this invasion angle later on, you don't see an ECW champion, TV champion, tag team champions. You only see the WCW belts. So that's it. But no, no yes. we forgot one thing. Oh, uh, uh. The, the assets of ECW are once again purchased by Vincent K. McMahon. Yes. Somehow so, this is not a monopoly. I don't understand <laughs> antitrust laws. I don't. Maybe this is an apology for the XFL getting shut out by the NFL. I don't know. Because technically there were still other competitive wrestling yeah, organizations. Yeah, that is going to turn the world on its ear. Rob Black for president. All right. So that brings us all the way back to so that now you know 
the environment in which WrestleMania uh, 17 is going to exist in. Because all of that that we talked about is happening all the way up until, I mean, the purchase by W by the the purchase of WCW by WWE and the whole X uh, ECW uh, crumbling takes place in like Q1 of 2001. And so when it all finally, you know, when we get the infamous simulcast of Vince and Shane, that's like the week of WrestleMania. So it's, it's just important to understand historical context when we get there. So let's get there. Um, going all the way back to WrestleMania 2000 now, the following month uh, after we have our four-way McMahon clash with their hands of doom wrestling each other, Mick Foley, The Rock, uh, Big Show, and Triple H, uh, we're continuing on with the uh, fighting and feuding McMahon family, um, McMahon Helmsley family, as a matter of fact, because Triple H had turned on DX. We go to Backlash. April 30th of 2000. And I'm just going to, just so you get a flavor of where they're building to with WrestleMania 17, I'm only going to hit the, the matches that matter. So here you have um, The Rock defeating Triple H with McMahon and with Mr. McMahon and Stephanie in his corner. Uh, you had uh, Edge and Christian uh, taking on Degeneration X. And you had Chris Benoit defeating Chris Jericho for the Intercontinental title. Um, the next month, we're going to skip Insurrection because who cares? And <laughs> during this era, we got a Judgment Day. Sorry, UK. Um, so it's important to note that both The Undertaker and Steve Austin missed WrestleMania 2000. They were both injured. But uh, The Undertaker makes his return. And Pat... Uh, without going on a rant about how much the Undertaker sucks, he does. Uh, we'll get there, but I do. It should be we should recognize at least from a macro perspective how important the Undertaker is to this era and what's about to change here because this is a pretty monumental thing. Because from like what eighty nine on, he had been the zombie character, and then well, yeah. he gets in, and then he gets injured, and he'd been injured intermittently throughout this period. But this is a fairly lengthy time off that he that he gets here, and when he comes back in two thousand. He comes back for the very, very first time as the underbiker. <laughs> yeah, for I mean, for again, yeah, for for nine years to this point, he's been some sort of supernatural being. Whether it was initially mm -hmm. the zombie undertaker who can't be stopped or whatever, or this you know demonic cult leader, which is the only time I found him remotely interesting, is the Ministry of mm -hmm. Darkness undertaker. Um, he comes back as the underbiker, as Mark mm -hmm. pointed out, where he's just some Texas redneck uh, in a. In a you know, uh, long trench uh, duster. He's, he's uh, his version of Steve Austin. It's all of his asshole personality turned up to 11. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of The Undertaker kind of came from Vince's idea of a gunfighter. So there's the motorcycle aspect, like he's riding mm -hmm. a horse. You know, it, it, mm -hmm. he, he's a stalwart presence in that company. He's a special attraction and has been for a long time. He's their next generation of Andre without half of the ability or charisma. Um, He's, he's a guy who people know. Yeah. You know who The Undertaker is. He's constantly somebody who, even if he's not in the main event, if you put him in the main event, nobody's asking questions. Yeah. Why is he there? He's The Undertaker. He has that special presence about him, to be fair to him. Look, and, and we, we are very critical of wrestling. We watch with critical eyes. We are not afraid to speak the critical truth. Yeah. But let's not run away from the obvious fact that he is beloved. For people, who, for, for your average general audience wrestling um member 
he is a beloved character. And when he shows up, no one gives a crap that he can't wrestle. Nobody, <laughs> nobody cares about all of the other stuff that we talk about at length. They're just so happy to see The Undertaker, they can hardly stand it. And yeah. so after being, especially when he goes away for a while, when he goes away and then comes back, everyone like throws their pants at him. Yeah, it's, even it's, if it's a pretty amazing phenomenon. Yeah, well, of course. Absence, you know, how, how can you, how can we miss you if you don't go away? So when he comes back, it's, it's the whole picture. You know, he's coming back at the end of an Iron Man match between The Rock and, and Triple H, which by yeah. the end of that, I'm sure just about anything would have popped that crowd. You know, <laughs> wow, that was a long match. Um, yeah, but he comes back at the end with doing the, and so, He's back. People love him. He's got a different look. He's got. He. I think this is when he was doing Kid Rock music. The whole uh, this thing. Is limp, this is limp. Is this Limp Biscuit or is this Kid yeah. Rock? It doesn't matter. It was one of the two, and they're about the same. So, yeah. um, he's coming back with you know with hip fun music of that era, and it's great. It's a, it's 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 a celebration. It's also more more point to the narrative. Uh, it's another guy they can put in the main event to mix up with the Rock and Triple H, yeah. who are both over. But I don't, I don't know if anyone's convinced they're by themselves putting butts in seats. No. And and even then, the audience is kind of getting a little bit of a, all right, these guys again, type of reaction. Because there's not Steve Austin. There's not The Undertaker. Right. They haven't really elevated other guys yet. They will. But they haven't gotten them to that level yet to get them into the main event. The scene of serious players there. And there's a lot of false starts with that as well. So we move from Judgment. That's the, that's the big attraction there to, to Judgment Day. We're still doing a lot of the same things over and over again. I talked in our introduction, the written introduction that you can see in the description of this podcast, that this is the rise of Kurt Angle into a main event player. Um, and everyone gets their rise from the King of the Ring, and Kurt's no different. He wins the King of the Ring here by reading the ass man, the real ass man, Rikishi. Um, and we've got more of The Rock and now The Undertaker mixing it up with the McMahons. Um, and that's really it. That's the story of King of the Ring. Uh, so we go to Fully Loaded, which was in July of 2000. Speaking of false uh, starts for main events. Yeah. We get we got, we got uh, a couple of them in here. So it's important. This is a, important just because of the people involved in it and how, you know, how this is going to lead us eventually to WrestleMania 17. A um, couple of really solid matches here. We have the Hardy Boys. Um Taking TNA. on Testament, yeah, TNA, Testament Albert. We have The Undertaker. This was a good Kurt show. Angle. Can we talk about this show instead of WrestleMania X7? I like this show. <laughs> sure. We have Triple H uh, defeating Chris Jericho in a last man standing match. And then we have The Rock defeating Chris, uh, defeating Chris Benoit. The importance, all of, the importance all of which is that you have Chris Benoit, who's, who's going to do a three-year build into his main event opportunity. Um, and again, you have you have now you have more guys to build a better card with with the Undertaker, Triple H, and The Rock all in separate matches. You're also building up Kurt Angle and you're building up Chris Jericho, if all of, of which are going to be in the main event. If one of them could have won, though, that would have been nice. It would have been, but the WWE is not that brave. No. Speaking of bravery, that brings us to SummerSlam. <laughs> And this is where we get the infamous uh, tables, ladders, and chairs match between uh, Edge and Christian, the Dudleys, and the Hardy Boys. Um, we get another Kane. We get Kane versus Undertaker, part 167. Uh, we also have The Rock and Triple H and Kurt Angle in a triple threat match. 
Uh, was this the one where where they where Triple H nearly killed Kurt Angle? Yes, where Kurt got concussed in the first five minutes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. That's that's the one thing I remember about this entire SummerSlam is he goes to do the pedigree and the table cannot take the weight, and and Kurt Angle goes down and flames with Triple H nestled nicely on top of his head. Even this is uh, not not a not a pretty sight. I think first uh, many times Kurt Angle has continued working through a period he shouldn't. I, wasn't he like legit knocked out cold for a few minutes? He, he was con- he was completely concussed. His eyes okay. were totally glazed over. He had no idea where he was. Uh, that takes us to Unforgiven 2000, and we get uh, The Rock, Chris Benoit, Kane, and The Undertaker. We get Triple H and Kurt Angle again. Um, we get Eddie, who is doing fun things with China wrestling Rikishi. We get another Hardy Boys, Edge and Christian. So you can start to see that they've got a lot of the same guys all working together, which is why when we get to WrestleMania 17, it feels like it, it feels better than it actually is because we've been spending a year with the same like 10 people all wrestling each other and then leading to this big, giant, crazy circus event where they're all going to get a spotlight on them. See, that's how this works, people. You, you can't just create a monumental event overnight. You got to do it over time with the same people and get and put them all in the spotlight one after the other. That's and the it, trick here. This this WrestleMania really feels more than any other up to this point. Mm-hmm. Like they're recognizing almost like a real sports league, like the NHL, the NBA, the, that they have a season. And there's mm-hmm. a culmination of that season in one particular championship game. And then everything starts fresh the next night. And that's kind this is kind of the first real time they're really building to that and doing this. You have to the to, for the first time in a while, they have their biggest stadium to date that they're using to host this. And you know, the culmination of all these things that they've been doing for the year, year and a half prior to this are all coming together. So um the reason why Steve Austin missed WrestleMania was he got injured. Uh, he had been he he'd been broken down after a two three year solid, pr- pretty intense run, and so he needed time off. And they did an injury attack at the previous year's Survivor Series, um, Survivor Series nineteen ninety nine. Uh, he's back now, so it's October twenty second of two thousand. And who killed Stone Cold? That's the question on everyone's mind. And so it begins here. I think this is the infamous uh, Rikishi did it, I and did he did it for the Rock, rock. brother. Yep. <laughs> Swing and a miss, guys. Swing and a miss. Um, so, yeah, so he wrestles Rikishi in a no contest. So Steve Austin's back, and we're really building our, you know, our uh, our, a, our, our A team here going into WrestleMania. We've got Triple H and Chris Benoit wrestling. We've got Kurt Angle and The Rock. Um, and so that's No Mercy 2000, which takes us to Survivor Series. Ah, uh, yes. This is... Um, this isn't the two-man power trip, is it? Or, or no, that that's that's later on. That's um, later on. Okay. This is this is when the two-man power trip were dropping each other off of forklifts and stuff. And oh, that's yeah. This is where Steve Austin tried to murder Triple H. Got yes. it. Yes. Um. So yes. Yeah, so Steve Austin tries to murder Triple H, and that ends in a no contest. Don't you understand? Uh, we get a we get a Survivor Series match between the Dudleys, the Hardys, Edge and Christian, and nobody cares. Um, nobody cares is the right to censor. Kurt Angle versus The Undertaker. Uh, we get The Rock and Rikishi. And then um, down the card, we get uh, The Radicals versus Degeneration. Yeah. Um, so that's the Survivor Series. We're going to skip the British one here, and we'll go to Armageddon out of here. 
in uh, December 2nd of two, 2000. Nope, December 10th in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, the main event is Kurt Angle and a six-pack challenge. No, this is a six-pack hell in the cell. Oh, yeah, this is the one where they tried to kill Rikishi by dropping him into a bale of hay. Repeated attempts at murder, everybody. WWF from <laughs> 2000. Yup. <laughs> Come for the wrestling, stay for the murder. Um, we get so Kurt Angle defeats The Rock, Steve Austin, Triple H, The Undertaker, and Rikishi. Yeah, I'm not even telling you who has the belt in all of these things because it does not matter. They threw that belt each other like a hot potato. It's sort of irrelevant to everything else going on at the time, um, as is the rest of this card. Though we do, ha- though we do have a another fatal four way here with Edge and Christian, the Dudleys, <laughs> Degeneration X, and Right to Censor. Mark, refresh my memory. On this show, is there a weird, like, intercontinental four-way between, like, Benoit, Jericho, X-Pac, and somebody else? Uh, there's an intergender elimination tag team match between the Radicals um, and Team Extreme. No. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, you're thinking of a different show. Yeah. But again, belts don't matter. No. not, not Two lines it anyway. Period. Points don't matter, guys. All right, so Steve Austin's been back for a couple of months now, and it's high time we got him back into the main event the WWE Championship uh, uh, spotlight. So we're going to do that with the Royal Rumble 2001. Uh, he wins the Royal Rumble because, of course, he does. I think he's won every Rumble he's been in. Um, <laughs> Almost. <laughs> and uh, he gets, you know, he's going to wrestle whoever happens to be the champion. It could have been Pat at this point. Nobody knows. That belt was everywhere um, at WrestleMania 17. We also get Jericho and Benoit wrestling each other. And hey, take a drink, everybody. The Dudley boys wrestled Edge and Christian for the tag team titles. Get right out of town. And then uh, Kurt Angle defeats Triple H uh, for the WWF championship for like the zillionth time. That takes us to No Way Out, February 25th, 2001. Uh, We get The Rock defeating Kurt Angle because everyone has to now get their places setting up for wrestlemania okay we've had some fun we put a belt here and a guy there and it's all been lovely up to this point but hey quit screwing around now we got to get ready for the big show rock there austin there everyone get behind them that's the plan but um, again another another year where poor kurt angle gets shuffled into something out of nowhere because they don't have an actual plan for him we'll talk about that on the next show too yeah uh, so we have the Dudley Boys versus uh, Kane and the Undertaker. We have Triple H in a two out of three falls match. Uh, this was another one with a where where Triple H and Steve Austin must have been sitting in the back. And we're like, how are we gonna how are we going to make our wrestling match different from everybody These else? Stages what, of hell. What if we tried to actually kill each other? You mean like you know Sean and Brett? Well, no, I hate I don't hate you, Triple H. I love you, but but in, in that love there must also be death. <laughs> okay. Jesus, do you remember this one? Uh, I do. I remember it actually being very good. Uh, it was uh, the first fall. I think was just a straight wrestling match. Mm-hmm. The second fall was a street fight, and then the third fall was uh, what was it? Still was it, uh, it was a cage, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. They, they, I'm not saying it wasn't it wasn't a bad match, but it does feel like Triple H and Steve Austin aren't going to be happy until they both, you know, literally fall into a grave together. I mean, at this point, they're also looking for what the hell can we do to keep this interesting. Yeah, true. Um, and Triple H has very famously said that not too long after this, they have to knock this shit off because they're going to legit kill some money in there. Yeah, which is an attitude, you know, a lot of us have looking back at this going, what the fuck, man? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of what defines the attitude error in the Monday Night Wars. Just just what the fuck? Just car crash, hotshot booking. Yeah. 
Um, your match that you were referring to is Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero on Xbox and a fatal four way for the IC title. That's the one I was thinking. That's a little hidden gem. It was very random, but it was very fun. And I couldn't remember what show it took place on. Mm-hmm. So at this point in time, I really became very apathetic about the product. All right. And now we're here. We're at WrestleMania 17. We've got Austin on one side, The Rock on the other, Vince McMahon in the middle with one hand on his genitalia. At the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. That's important. Yes. Yes. Um, Reliance Stadium, I guess it's called, but it's the Astrodome to me. Something um, Something that we talked about on the last show, Stuart and I, was how... Uh, after WrestleMania 9, they don't do a stadium again for a very long... I don't even know if the one in rest, in, at 9 is technically a stadium. No, it was a it's, it was, it, it's a casino. Yeah, well, I don't know what Caesars Palace was considered at the time. Um, so let's go with WrestleMania 7, uh, 8 then, just to make it even. Um, yeah, the last time they do a stadium is the Hoosier Dome. Then it's a casino. Then it's the Garden. And so far, we're like, okay, okay, both Heart of those Pacific are fine. Center. Anaheim yeah, and then they went to hockey arenas. Rosemont, Rosemont Horizon, uh, TD Bank Arena, Boston Garden, whatever you want to refer to it as. Uh, right. I don't remember where 15 took place on. I think it was Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Hockey Center. Yeah. And then 16 was back at the pond in Anaheim. Right. So, yeah, we're doing – so not counting, you know, the experimentations at casinos and the legacy at the Garden, we're doing hockey and basketball arenas for a good six, seven-year stretch. And then we're finally, 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 Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey – at a stadium for the first time since WrestleMania eight. Um, and what a joyous occasion it was. And that's what also what makes this kind of monumental because you, because when you think about what we've laid out through this series, we've talked about how the cracks in the armor start to form with WrestleMania six, yeah. seven, the cracks get deeper and by eight things are shattering left and right. And then after that, it's just trying to figure out what to do with the pieces you got left. And slowly putting them back together again. And by the time you get to WrestleMania 17, we've got a nice, shiny, glass, perfectly blown piece of artwork here. It's, you know, everything's back together again. We are, the ba- everything is exactly where it needed to be from the previous height of the WWE. They have finally ascended to WrestleMania 5 heights. When you think about it, that's a 12-year period it took. Well, Rom wasn't built in a day. It was not, Ali. It was not. So, all right. Let's take it one at a time here. We kick things off with, well, Pat, you, don't you understand you're dealing with the X Factor? <laughs> and Justin, I got everything I ever wanted. Oh, my God. Just incredible. Fresh off his uh, run in ECW. Monumental run as ECW champion. Because he's not just the best, don't you understand? He's just. He's not just the coolest. He's just incredible. And X-Pac. Uh, defeat Grandmaster Sexay and Steve Blackman. Boy, don't you remember that team? Nope. Um, kicking off the pay-per-view proper is... He's a man, don't you understand? Uh, is Chris Jericho uh, versus William Regal. Chris Jericho is the Intercontinental Champion at this point. And him and Regal have a solid match. This is a match that would have kicked off Nitro a few years back. And now it's kicking off WrestleMania. I mean, here you know... Jericho is one of the more overacts in the company at this point in time, for sure. Um, He's connecting with the audience big time. Regal is trying to just rebuild himself at this point after his, you know, numerous instances where he just had such a bad drug and alcohol problem that he couldn't sustain any momentum. And it's never been for lack of talent on his end. And I think this match is a good illustration of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my big criticisms of Jericho, and it was very apparent leading into this, he's wrestling a lot against Chris Benoit. He's having matches with X-Pac. 
when he's wrestling Benoit, he's trying to do technical things and exchange submissions with Benoit and chops with him. Mm. When he's wrestling X-Pac, he's trying to throw spin kicks and stuff like that. Jericho, rather than do what's sensible in those matches, is just doing trying to outdo his opponent at their own thing. And it's always been a weird off psychology to me for a guy who's a very good wrestler and capable of a lot mm-hmm. against Regal. I think Regal just controls the narrative of this match so much that it makes Jericho look very good because he's having him do the stuff he needs to do. In Regal that had two of the best matches, technical matches, I think, in WCW, if I'm remembering correctly. I know one of them was Ultimo Dragon. I believe there was Regal Ultimo Dragon at a, at a slam, not a slam anniversary, at a slamboree. Slamboree that was phenomenal. It it yeah. is right. It is in like my top five like technical matches of all like wrestling that should look like wrestling. Ultimo Dragon William Regal is one of my favorite matches of all time. It's Owen Bulldog. It's Kurt Benoit. It's 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 so good. I mean, yeah. and it's and it's a buried treasure because it's like it's Ultimo Dragon who who gives a crap unless you're like you know nerdy indie Japanese wrestling dude. You know, and it's William Regal who gives a crap because it's William Regal. But God damn it, pal. If you like wrestling, Ultimo Dragon and William Regal is your shit. And yeah. then the other one is him and Fit Finlay in WCW, which I don't remember when it took place. But dude, uh, William Regal and Fit Finlay is a man's man's wrestling match. On Uncensored 96, where Finlay explodes Regal's nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did. And then they had a they had a parking lot car brawl, which is something if you didn't. Like, if you didn't know Regal and you only knew him as Lord Steven Regal, you'd think this is mm-hmm. completely out of this guy's wheelhouse. But right. he's just a tough, tough guy in real life. Yeah. And he talked about, no- like, wrestling. Didn't he, like, wrestle an Indian crap like that where, well, the, wrestling, where the wrestling is re- real and so is the no, death? No, he, he almost died in India due to, okay. you know, some stuff. But that was mm-hmm. later on. Uh, but he did wrestling carnivals around okay. Blackpool, which is, like, a resort kind of summer area in England. Where he's 15 years old having to take on comers from the audience. Yeah. Yeah, Regal's no, Regal's no slouch. He's, you know, he's a legitimately very, very tough man, but he's also an excellent yeah. in-ring performer like you're underscoring right mm-hmm. here. And I think that's why this is one of the better matches I've seen Jericho in in a long mm-hmm. time at this point because he's not trying to do the European stuff with Regal in terms of that chain, you know, catches catch ken style stuff. He's not trying to out-tough Regal. He's doing the stuff that would make sense for him to do in this. He's hitting that springboard dropkick. He's hitting the lion salt. Yeah. He's going for the walls of Jericho for the wings. That's his patented hold. But it's not like he's trying to outdo Regal at the, the catch game in this. And no. all things Regal... being equal, you're going by like what what should happen with two guys with their with their talent sets. Regal would tie Jericho up in knots. Yeah. So don't try to match him at that. Do what you're right. doing. Hit missile drop kicks. Hit, hit lion salts. Do what you have to do in that right. vein to try to make the match yours. Keep the pace right. fast. Come off the ropes. Do that stuff. And they do. And I think it works better. And I think this is, you know, one of two years in a row where Regal really does a great job in the opening match of underscoring how good the other guy is. Mm-hmm. But if you know what's going on, you understand how good he is, too. It, it's a shame Regal is so good in a world that doesn't really appreciate him because <laughs> we see it. And I think people who pay attention to wrestling see it. It's his but, entire WCW run, too, though. Yeah, but he's wrestling in a world where you look you look and wrestle like the undertaker and you're a big star and you make millions of dollars and you're in tons of main events you look and you look and wrestle like william regal and you're awesome but nobody knows it and yeah. that is that is the true shame of the world we live in that, that and tlc later on we'll get to, we'll, we'll, we'll get to wwe's insistent that somebody has to die in a ring for uh, during a match at least yeah um, before I continue, and I have now tried to do this several times, and because I'm a bad host and forget to do my ad reads, let me remind everyone that Grammarly, for you listeners of the Mania of WrestleMania, 
podcast is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network for free. All right, back to fun and exciting games with wrestlers. All right, we have Taz and the APA. Uh, this is this is right about this is about a year or so before Bradshaw is going to become George Bush. So, you know, no, it it's a it couple is. years before that. Oh, it's a couple years before that? Yeah. I, I, he doesn't I, do that till 2000. Oh, that's right. We still have three more years of this nonsense before Eddie gets a <laughs> <the> title. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yes, Taz and the what are we going to do with Bradshaw and Farouk Dag team uh, take on a truly, truly brilliant and uh, just. It's just amazing faction here. The right to censor with the best theme music in the history of pro wrestling. Just the siren going off. Well, and remember, Taz is Taz is a, a late minute shoehorn in this angle mm-hmm. for Jerry Lawler. Okay, uh, that's right. This is where uh, one of the times Jerry almost died on air or something like that. No, this is uh, so we go back to the. Oh, this is the thing with out. the cat where he yes. quit because of the cat situation. Okay. Yeah, Jerry Lawler's on-screen wife, who had become apparently such a nightmare backstage, was involved in an angle with Right to Censor, where she was trying to start Right to Nudity. Mm-hmm. And like Mark alluded to, there was a group called Right to Censor, who was basically a takeoff of the PMRC, which was a parental and teacher group that was trying to curb any kind of lewd behavior on television, especially television they felt aimed at children, which they felt yes. wrestling was. I think, we can, I think we can safely say they lost that fight. Yeah, no shit. Um <laughs> But they had this stable that they made with Stephen Richards as the head mm. the helm of it. And he was converting all these formerly irredeemable people like porn star Val Venus, uh, yep. Pimp the Godfather. Yep. They became Val Venus, the, the right to censor guy, he became the good father, not the godfather, mm. and all these stupid things. And uh, it was a great gimmick, honestly. It really was it very really was. Well, well played. It's it's one of the it's it's one of the things that on paper seems dumb as shit, but actually even just it came off awesome. Yeah, you know, and, it's but one, now, and it's also one of the few times WWE took an editorial point of view, decided to make an angle out of it, and it worked. Yeah, but now we're we're going back seven years. Every every one of these seven years, Jerry Lawler has been a part of WrestleMania as a mm-hmm. basically a feature act of the company as a commentator. And Jerry Lawler's wife is embroiled in this angle where she's preaching right to nudity and trying to be the anti-right to censor. And they do this angle with the big build at No Way Out, where if uh, she, if Lawler uh, wins his match against Stephen Richards, she's able to get nude on pay per view. <laughs> Talk about a bait and switch. And then if, if Lawler loses, she is forced to join right to censor. So the last time we see her, Lawler loses the match based on botched cat interference. And they carry her away with her tears running and mascara and stuff. And they make her dress in the right to censor gimmick for one week on television. And then she's gone because she's fired from the company for being such a nightmare backstage. Lawler, in one of the rare showings of morality in his lifetime, Decides, I'm going to stand by my wife and I'm going to quit this company if they're not going to support her or do right by her. Meanwhile, she was having an affair with, uh, I believe it was uh, one of the Dups at the time from ECW. I think it was H.C. Locke. So, yeah, Jerry Lawler, chivalry is not dead. I will not stand while you mistreat my wife. And they went, bye, Felicia. And this is why it's easier to talk to 14 and 16-year-old girls than Mr. Grunt. No, I'm not going to go there with Jerry Lawler. Um, (laughs) I'd boo you, but you're not wrong. Um, um, So, anyway... (laughs) To this match, Taz and the APA versus Right to Center is fine. I mean, this is, you know, when you're living it at the time, when you're when you're watching Monday Night Raw on a weekly basis and you're seeing these angles play out, 
it's fun to watch them, you know, culminate at a big show like this. Watching it 20 years later, uh, nah, not so much. Even this, the only thing that was fun about this at the time for me was that Taz got a win. Yeah, true. Um, all right, so Poor next Taz. Up, what, a, what a fall from grace, man. Ugh, you ain't kidding. Uh, future ECW champion Kane defeats Raven in the big show in a WWF hardcore championship match. Look, we're in an era. It's like we, we, we watched Harry Broadhurst and I recently reviewed one of the uh, no holds barred things. And it's like one of the things we talked about was how hard it is sometimes to review some of that stuff because it's the same shit over and over and over again. Oh, you know, and WWE wasn't much better 20 years ago, which means we've had over 20 years of this nonsense of it's just like an entire match of people hitting each other with random, random bric-a-brac. Yeah. I, OK, <laughs> again, when you're watching it, when you're watching it in the moment, it's entertaining enough, but so are jingling keys to have to then think about it later on and try to somehow talk about it intelligently, reflexive, reflectively. It's hard to do that because, yes, it's the same nonsense hitting each other with shit that every other match where hitting each other with shit happens. I don't know what else you want me to say here. Yeah. What, what did they do inventive with this? Raven got thrown through a wall, right? <laughs> yes, by two large men. Yeah. That he got thrown through a wall. That was the innovative spot. And I, I would get I would almost guarantee you that Raven himself came up with the idea for that. Yeah. Just to do something to stand out because he is for all Scotty's faults, he's one of the most intelligent people in terms of wrestling, not yeah. you know, and doing that stuff. And he he probably was like, you know, it'd make this stand out a little bit is we had this moment in it. And unfortunately, yep. there's a show with a lot of these moments in it. So so, you know, Christine often jokes, we talked about this when we did the Royal Rumble and the Elimination Chamber commentary, you know, he, he always sarcastically makes fun of the WWE and he says it's about the moments. And looking back at a lot of these WrestleManias, this one especially, it does feel like a collection of moments who when you're living it, it's cool to be in that moment. And then when you watch it years later, you're like, yep, that happened. That, that was certainly a thing that made me happy at the time. <laughs> I wasn't even in the moment then lasting impact it did not have is my point right uh eddie guerrero with per perry saturn defeats test oh poor test <laughs> where uh my is test dead I, I, we, you'd have to check twitter um my son my son asked me I, we watched wrestlemania 15 together and he saw test come out and he looked at me and he says i have two questions and i said what's that son of mine he said one why do they call him test what kind of name is that one of the what, 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 what homework was already used that's my son who said that. Who's eight? <laughs> Number one, and I was like, "Yeah, Mick Foley agrees with you." Two, gosh, you know, you look at Test and you look at like guys like Sid and whatever. They just have this great look, and you wonder well, how how are you not the most highest earner in this company with the you know with the most main events and everything? Like Test had everything, and yet and yet. He never made. He never quite made it. They tried. They really tried to make Test a thing, but there were times they tried, and there were times where he tried, and they weren't trying with him. Yeah. Just uh, I don't know. Any, I, I only bring it up because I'm curious if you have any insight as to why Test never really he got to the next he, level. At times, he got labeled for having a bad attitude, which mm -hmm. a lot of people get labeled with when they just don't agree with bad creative. Sure. But this is a guy who, if you remember his like big come up where he was Stephanie McMahon's fiance and they yeah. were doing that whole thing, and he had the, the big street fight with Shane McMahon that was so much better than it had any right to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then they did the whole thing where now it was a swerve. Stephanie's really with Triple H and whatever. He got zero payoff in that angle in any way. Well, like, now, how did they now, not do the? How did they not do the Test versus Triple H match on pay per view? 
Well, instead we got te- we got Triple H and Vince. Like, I have an answer for that, and, and it, it occurs to me as you're talking about it. The rumor on Triple H has always been that anyone who looks too much like him is never getting a big push because he's coveted of of his spot. He's never gotten over the trauma of having to wrestle a hot, you know, in hog pen matches before, before the curtain call, you assholes. Stop telling the story out of order, as we've already discussed. Yeah, and and like there was little like they were on test for years to cut his hair, which mm-hmm. going into that narrative kind of makes a lot yep. more sense. And Lance Storm once told a great story about how they brought Lance, Test, and Christian in to talk to them about the Un Americans and how they wanted them all to cut their hair like Lance. Mm-hmm. And uh Test was adamantly like, no, that's a stupid haircut. No offense, Lance. I'm not going <laughs> to cut my hair because I'm going to look stupid like that. No offense, Lance. Like repeatedly <laughs> just talking about how bad it would be and then talking to Lance about what a bad idea it is. But then, of course, you know, for all the shit we throw at them for that, Test and Christian both wound up cutting their hair and looking a million times better after they did it. Yep. Look, to, to the last thing I'm going to say about this, to the bad attitude thing, that's not exclusive to the WWE. I mean, I know I, know I pick on them for being a bit cultish. But I mean, if you go into your, if you go to work, we get to my job. Who are we talking about? Yeah, here? I was gonna say, if you go to work and someone tells you to do something and you say no, yes, you will be told you have a bad attitude. Your attitude should be yes, master. That is the way things work here in America. Uh, speaking of American Americans, hey, Mark, best... who won? Tester Eddie Guerrero. That would be Eddie, sir. Um, the next match, the best match on the card. I don't care what you say. This is the best wrestling match on the card. This is yeah. the best wrestling match of this era. This is one of my favorites. This is the one who way back when we were talking about WrestleMania 3, I said, for me, if I have to pick between the Dragon and the Macho Man and Kurt Angle and Benoit, I'm picking Angle Benoit 9 out of 10 times. It's just, I rave about this match. This is everything I want wrestling to be when I don't want it to be near murder. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I love, Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle legit look like they were struggling with each other. I remember watching this in my house with my friends and we were all laughing and drinking and having a grand old time. And it was just the best time ever. And I made everyone shut up during this match because this was a religious observance for me. This was wrestling. It's five stars in the Tokyo Dome, Dave Meltzer, Young Bucks. This is the first match where you have Kurt Angle, who is a legitimate Olympic gold medalist Mm -hmm. in freestyle wrestling. One of the great amateurs of his era in an era where he was the small guy going up against naturally larger men all the time and still coming out with medals from the Olympics, from the Pan American Games, uh, placing twice in the NCAA finals, you know, a legit wrestling machine. Mm -hmm. He's never been allowed to expose a lot of that in his matches because there's certain guys who, if they did it, Okay, well, the story's over because now Angle's got them on the mat. What are you supposed to do? Right. And then, two, there's not a lot of guys who can vibe with that style because this is at a time when a lot of guys with amateur backgrounds aren't who are being scouted and brought in. Um, There's not a lot of guys who have a real solid fundamental base of how to wrestle as opposed to how to throw myself through a ladder or do this stuff. And Benoit, of course, you know, is trained not only, you know, they, they referenced the Heart Dungeon when really he was, you know, trained by guys at the Heart House. (laughs) Um, but he also spends a ton of time in the new Japan dojo, which Heyman brings up. And that allows you to get a lot of principles of catch wrestling or submission wrestling. There's a lot of association with Benoit and the dynamite kid. Um, did did he train the dynamite kid? No, he he just, he, he, he absolutely idolized dynamite when they worked Mm -hmm. together in stampede in the late eighties. He took, picked the dynamite's brain a lot. That's what I was referring to. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but again, training in the New Japan Dojo, you get schooled on a lot of catch wrestling fundamentals at the time Benoit was mm-hmm. there. 
So you now you have that submission style of wrestling versus the amateur freestyle folk style wrestling. And they blend it really well. Where Angle's shooting double legs and single legs without a problem, putting Benoit on his back. But while Benoit's on his back, he's isolating Kurt Angle's arm to one side. Or mm. he's using a role that wouldn't be legal in amateur wrestling, but it's catcher's catch. Anything goes, and he's taking an, he's taking an ankle pick. And that stuff is so different from everything that's going on at the time. And like any and, good wrestling match that starts off as technical as this was, it's, it eventually devolves as both guys not able to flare. get... Yeah, not able to get one over on each other. They start taking liberties with each other, and it builds, and it builds, and it, it finally crescendos in beautiful violence. That's yeah. the thing I loved about this. The, oftentimes, especially during this era, they threw the storybook right out the window and just said, well, what if we just hit each other with cars? You know, and, and, and here, they brought all the story back. Yeah, and, and because a lot of this is the game of one-upsmanship, I'm a better wrestler than you. No, I'm a better wrestler than you. I'm going to prove it by out-wrestling you. I'm going to prove it by out-wrestling you. Simple basis, yep. as simple as it gets. This is 70s two guys era. who are wrestlers trying to prove who is the better wrestler. Right. This is seventies era Bill Watts style wrestling, and I loved it. Yeah, it's it's, it's so good. Yeah, um, and, and, and the finish, the finish is great because it 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 doesn't it ends the match, but it doesn't end the story because how did how did they finish? Well, Kurt Angle gets a roll up and pulls the tights to get mm. that illegal leverage on it. So he's got the bragging point of, yeah, I won. I beat him. I'm the better wrestler. But then was like, well, you pulled my tights. How about we go into my world? And if you're such a great wrestler, you go into a submission match for me. And that yeah. feud rolls for a couple more months. They'll have matches again, you know, a year later, two years later that are awesome. And but, yeah. you think about, like, the just the year prior – Kurt Angle had wrestled both Jericho and Benoit and lost both his titles and hadn't gotten actually beaten in that match, which is brilliant. Yeah, and, and that match, I mean, they took that. This is this is the booking difference between this match and that match. That year mm -hmm. prior, they were just like, oh, these are three guys with good reputation. Let's just throw them in there and see what happens type of thing. Yeah. And you really didn't get a great match out of it. You got an okay match with some fun in it, but it, considering the level of two of those three guys at the time and Benoit and Jericho who had been doing this for a long time, an angle who is a prodigy, but is only on the WWF main roster at this point for not even six months. Mm -hmm. You know, now you have it a year later where you have the guy who was seen as the best overall worker in that match in Benoit, uh, a, full, a much more seasoned Kurt Angle, who is now knowing how to meld his amateur stuff into his pro stuff. And man, it makes for an amazing match. I've, 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 I told you offline, this is of their, of their long and an illustrious series of matches together. This match is my third favorite out of them. And that's not a knock on it. It's just their level and their bar kept going higher and higher each time they got together. I think 2000 to 2004 is probably, in terms of in-ring work, is probably the best the WWE ever gets. And I don't think it's been better than that since. No, I think there's a marked pickup like in that 2002 to 2004 time frame. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the genesis of it where they see, oh, people are actually entertained by this. Yeah, Maybe we should this do is, more of it. This is the era of, I think, the SmackDown 7 um and all of that it's just you know it's the bet 2001 through 2004 is the best wrestlers in the world all in the same company wrestling each other yeah it's truly a great time to be a fan and then it all goes to plat after that and it never quite recovers yeah but and, and now here we are in 2022 where wrestling is a sad joke anyway <laughs> moving on <laughs> but if you love it that's fine good for you we anyway, used to <laughs> we used to and now we're crotchety old men watching 20-year-old wrestling matches. Speaking of 20-year-old wrestling matches, China defeats Ivory from the right to censor. Boy, China believed her own hype back then, didn't she, this lunatic? This poor, poor, crazy lady. 
I've now changed my name to be reflective of what we are to this. <laughs> That'll be only the second time in 24 hours I was referred to as Statler opposite of Waldorf. Uh, anything about China and Ivory? China, hey, look, Ivory did the best she could with this monster of a woman. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I know people look fondly back at China's career. I don't. I'm going to, again, toxic honesty, right? Mm -hmm. She was not a good in-ring wrestler. She no. wasn't. She was a very, uh, and I mean this in a kind way, freakishly physical woman where she had a, an incredible physique that she built over time with you know some chemical enhancements and what have you i'm gonna throw a name at and, you i'm gonna throw a name at you and i and, and you're gonna be like really but i but think about it she's kind of the female lex luger a lot of body would, not as almost, much not a lot of talent i would almost call her more akin especially in the vein of her working with other women mm -hmm. as more like a giant Gonzalez or an El Gigante, to be fair, um, or like a, a great colleague. Because if you're talking about her work and 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 in terms no. of just well, what? no, I, okay, I'm, saying, worker, I'm, fix, I'm fixated on her musculature. You're talking there's two, about there's two veins I'm going with here. One in yeah. one, one in one in, in, in cognizant of, of when she's working with women. She's yeah. more. What are you supposed to do with her? Right. There's no believable scenario where an Ivory or a Trish Stratus or a Molly Holly, as great as she was, is going to physically be able to do anything against this monster. Right. It's just not. Right. And that has nothing to do with her work. That has everything to do with the fact that as a woman, she weighed in excess of 200 pounds, was similar in stature and size to a lot of the men who she had mm -hmm. been wrestling for the prior two years before yeah. this. And now you go to wrestling, you know, with the exception of, you know, like, an ivory, a Molly, you know, largely glamour models who are now in the wrestling milieu and against the men, it was because she was such a large woman that it was there. There was that initial kind of phase of, Oh, maybe she should be fighting men. And then you realize even against small men like Jeff Jarrett, she looks maybe the same size as him. Right. And her work level is not good. I, I brought this up when Harry and I, talked about impact no surrender there's a match on there jordan grace who is a cute squat woman but that's what she is yeah. against matt cardona who's a full-grown man with muscles and i and I'm, I'm looking at harry and i'm like i know we're living in an era where intergender wrestling is now the norm especially on the indie scene but it's a load of horse crap that makes the whole thing i mean you want to talk about how do you make wrestling seem even faker yeah, Jordan Grace versus Matt Cardona is, is is a great example of that, and he's trying to sit there and tell me. And I love Harry to death, but he's trying to sit there and tell me, "Oh, well, you know, she's a muscular girl." No, 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 dude. You put Jordan Grace the size she is. You put Ivory the size she is against the people the size of Matt Cardona and China. They win ten out of ten times unless you have a gun. One right hand, hand is crap. One right yeah. hand and it's over. Yeah. <laughs> One right backhand and it's over. I, mean. I, I never minded China wrestling men because of her size and shape and musculature. It, but, you know, but again, uh, the shape is not the problem. To me, she, just, mm -hmm. she was a shitty worker. Oh, no, no. I, 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 look, assuming she could work like Chris Benoit, I was never – she looked appropriate next to the yeah. men she wrestled for the most part. You know, short of like the Big Show Kane or The Undertaker, she's in there with, you know, with guys, again, Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho is not a giant. You know, no, so she's in there with, so she's I think she was bigger than Eddie, you know. <laughs> so she's in there with the SmackDown seven. Sure. Well, let, other than let, Brock. Let, let uh let let China have a go. It's fine. Anything less than China, don't hand me that happy horse shit. And that's my point. 
Um, yeah, again, we Jordan Grace. She eliminated Brian Cage from that battle royal in uh, the I All or Nothing show. Like, never get over that. That was so I, bad. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, where we this? Okay, so you don't want anyone to think this is real. Got it. At which yeah. point, I don't. Th- this is why I don't care anymore when they do magic and teleportation and whatever, because you've already convinced me that this is another fantasy. So now, you know, I'm I'm bored with your fantasy because you tell bad stories. Anyway, um, the whole thing about Lex Luger, just to so people understand what I'm saying, if Lex Luger looks like me, and and wrestles the way Lex Luger already wrestled, I don't think he has much of a career. That's my point. You know, China gets away with being China because she looks like China. You know, right. she, but you know, but when you but when you work like Shmigeggy McGee, it, you know, you, I, the I, only reason why you're why you're on television is because you look the way you do. Right, and that's where the novelty wore off, and they had her start mm-hmm. wrestling women because at a certain point, it's like, why are we still having her do this with the men? Like, it's not special anymore. Mm-hmm. She's a woman. Let's have her go after the women's championship. And of course, over this point in time, we've also seen her get you know cosmetic surgeries to make her more feminine in appearance mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, Side note, funny story. Um, Jim Cornette often references how he was in charge in the WWF of booking people for autograph signings and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there was a flea market in New Jersey called the Route 18 Market, uh, located in uh, East Brunswick. Mm-hmm. And they had a store there that was affiliated with RF Video, and it was like three count productions, I think it was the name. But they used to always book WWF stars to do autograph signings. So uh, we used to go all the time, me and my friends, we'd go meet, you know, we got to meet a lot of people there. Um, and this one particular signing, it was supposed to be Triple H in China. Mm-hmm. And at the last minute, they changed it to Billy Gunn and the Road Dog. And this is a story that Jim Cornette always repeats because he got in trouble by booking China and Triple H for this appearance, not knowing that China was having dental surgery. And what it was was at the time they were restructuring her jaw mm-hmm. to be less rigid and more feminine. And so when Jim had to make the call and be like, hey, you know, she's having, you know, emergency dental surgery, whatever, he wasn't, I guess, supposed to say that. And he got a bunch of heat with Triple H for it, whatever. But I was supposed to be at that signing that he got in trouble for, which I always thought was funny. Uh, let's move on here. We have Shane McMahon. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the, what is it? The best of three, four McMahon matches at WrestleMania, this being the first? Shane versus Vince. In a nonsense match with Mick Foley as the referee. Why the fuck is Foley here? Because you need him to be. There. No, you don't. You don't you need do. Foley for anything. I understand your emotional attachment to Foley should be dead and never seen again, but you need him here because this is your big stupid circus match. Overbooked, stupid circus, you know, just catnip for the masses match. He's fine. So, so let's give the context of the story where. Uh, you know, Vince and Shane had been in each other's throats, etc. Vince thought he finally banishes Shane. Shane undercuts him by, on camera, buying out WCW from underneath him when Vince thought he had control of that. Gosh, I wish real life worked that way. I can can steal a company out from under you and nobody fucking notices. Yeah. (laughs) Especially that company. I wouldn't have minded that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, And I don't think Shane would have either, but... Mm. Um, anyway, we get that. That's where the drama from this is leading. And initially, Shane is portrayed and WCW is portrayed as the underdog baby faces against this evil emperor who's trying to just crush them and own them and take control. And Shane's like, no, I'm taking this out from you. You're not going to do this. And they show the WCW 
WCW guys in the mm-hmm. skybox uh, rooting Shane on. Wait, which is what, what it was the natural born thrillers and, and Hugh Booker Morris, T. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, I, like, we bought WCW and you were expecting to see like Goldberg and Flair and Sting. And it's like, oh, it's Kevin Nash's fucking flunkies. Got it. No, it's not even Kevin Nash. <laughs> no, it's flunkies. Yeah. It, it's, 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 it's the, the natural born thrillers. Yeah. That's and, what and they it's, got. It, it's them, Hugh Morris and Chavo. Like, <laughs> So bad. And I, I love Shabo. I, I, but this is not. I'm not even gonna. It's yeah. No, that's a whole. That's a whole third hour, and I don't. I don't want to be here that long. But yeah, that is that is what is always. I, I really there is a discussion that needs to be had about the invasion. No, there's how not. Piss poor and uh, and and poorly managed it was. And and Bruce Pritchard's thing. I'm only. I'm gonna say this just so I can get it off my chest, and then we can move on. But Bruce Pritchard's explanation to Conrad has never held water with me. He was like, "Well, all we got was the natural born thrillers and Hugh Morris. What were we supposed to do? I don't know. Have patience. Wait. Maybe don't immediately turn Diamond Dallas Page into a weirdo stalker for Undertaker's (laughs) not hot wife. When you think about like, well, we maybe don't refer to Booker T as an illiterate moron all the time and have him job out to the rock every single week. So the stuff with the invasion starts in earnest in April, May, right? It ends in November and the following month Flair showed up. And then not too long after that, Hogan and uh, Hall and Nash showed up. And not too long after that, Goldberg and Steiner show up. What do you mean? What are we, what were we supposed to do? And don't tell me you didn't know if you were going to get those people. You knew when their contracts were up, asshole. I, I hate Bruce Pritchard because he's such a liar. Like, if he had just said, we didn't want to wait, we had what we had, we didn't know if people would want to come into the WWE, that I can believe is an explanation. And so they were like, well, you go to war with the army you have, not the one you hope to get. Yeah, Fine, I get it. I still think then don't bother with this stupid invasion angle then. Just don't do it. But... At least I understand your logic to say like to, to, to not even acknowledge that even in hindsight makes Bruce Pritchard just the worst kind of carny liar dumbass I've ever seen. Well, yeah. <laughs> the truth. To dispute that or <laughs> no, <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to say yes, Rattledge and move on. Yeah. Uh, All right. Sorry. So anyway, Vince and Shane. Yeah. Shit Foley is the referee. Um <laughs> This match is the culmination of about 30 stupid storylines in one. The only one that mattered is Vince McMahon making Trish Stratus bark like a dog. Right. So let's touch on that for a moment. It's the best. Vince has been flaunting this affair in front of his wife, Linda, for months that he's been having with uh, Canadian blonde bombshell Trish Stratus. Mm-hmm. O- openly doing shit on TV, like being seen in very provocative situations with her tonguing her in front of his own wife and who's supposed to be catatonic in a wheelchair from all these events that have gone on, which is absurdly stupid in its own right. Mm-hmm. And when I say tonguing, I'm not exaggerating. You literally see them tonguing each other on SmackDown. Oh, it's, it's quite disturbing. Oh, it's gross. <laughs> it's, yeah. It is gross and awesome at the same time. Because yeah. I think they were going for gross and they succeeded in spades. Yeah. And uh, mm. on top of that, he's now made uh, Trish look like a fool by, you know, you're not above my daughter, please. And we all know mm. where that goes uh, in real life. Um <laughs> and uh this is right here is Stephanie McMahon's boobs, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so so at that point he's made you humiliated Trish by having her strip on television in Washington almost to the point of nudity. Mm-hmm. Paul Heyman gives the great line, "Hey Ma, I came to Washington and I'm going to get to see Bush." Um <laughs> so good. Yeah. 
Uh, Bush, of course, was the president of the United States at the time. H, uh, not HWW was the yeah, president. So sure. therein lies the humor. Um, but yeah, he does this humiliating thing where he makes her bark like a dog on all fours in her bra and a very, very small thong and does this. And, you know, she gets her revenge in this match by hitting him with a, a chair or something at some point. I don't yeah. whatever. And she always says, oh, well, the, you know, you could justify that moment because I got my revenge. And that's what people remember. No, they don't. I don't remember a fucking minute of this, and I rewatched it. I remember you in your fucking skivvies on all fours, barking like a dog, and then being told to take your bra off in front of an audience. Yeah, that's what everybody remembers. That is Stop all trying anyone to remembers. This any other way? That's nope. what everybody remembers about Vince right. and Trish Stratus. Nobody remembers that she got her revenge yeah. of any kind in any way. There Stop are two it. things about that entire period that anyone remembers: bark like a dog and Shane going coast to coast. That's yeah, it. and the coast to coast. Okay. Let's talk about that spot. What, he, what Mark is referring to, Vince is slouched in a corner with a garbage can placed in front of him. And on the other end corner, not across the ring, but directly adjacent to it, uh, is Shane standing on the outside of the ring who gets the idea to do jump up, springboard onto the top rope, and launch himself in a drop kick all the way across the ring to hit Vince, which, if you've never seen it before, was quite impressive. But the Rob Van Dam is, did it. As an ECW viewer, I've seen Rob Van Dam do this already. Right. And do it with a chair instead of a garbage can. And hit with his feet, not his ass. And landed with landed with his feet into somebody, not landing on his ass, and then kicking while he's on the ground. Yeah. And I don't I don't beleaguer Shane for trying that. Good on Shane for right. trying it, knowing he needed to do something big in that match to make it entertaining. Good right. on him. And I understand the ring is bigger. You know, yep. it's a harder thing, and that's fair. But this wasn't. This was. This was me being the wrestling snob and people <laughs> losing their shit. Oh my god, this dude did. Yeah, I liked it better when Rob Van Dam did it a year ago. Right. That was always my problem with it. It was like, one, how what what is wrong with you psychologically that you felt the need to do, when you're Shane McMahon in the position that you're in and you're looking around at the wrestling landscape and like I'm gonna steal Rob Van Dam stuff. Like, what did Rob Van Dam do to deserve that? Yeah, I, that, 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 that's that, my that thing. always didn't that always sat really wrong with me because mm -hmm. you just had a feeling at a certain point Rob Van Dam's gonna be there. It's just a matter of right. time. And sure enough, he shows up, I think it's two months later, three months later. Right. Then you've now taken a, the Van Terminator spot from him when he could have broken that out for a match that would have meant a whole lot more to him and his career than it does to Shane. And, and Shane's a character in a storyline. He's not a wrestler. He ne never was, never will be. I don't care how many things he jumped off of. Yeah. Onto his head, even. And, and again, it's not, it's, not that we're, it's not that we're shitting on him for it. Like, no. it's insane. Look, that Shane, McMahon's, Shane McMahon is responsible for some of the most memorable parts of that era. Like yeah. the King of the Ring with him and Kurt Angle, where he goes head first through glass. Oi. <laughs> I don't remember a lot these days, but boy, do Steve, I remember that. Steve Blackman at SummerSlam, where he falls backward off of that platform and right. nearly kills himself, which we we'll get to again. I think him, what is it, him in the big, was it him in the big show or him in the Steve big Blackman? show? Okay, where he went off the Titantron at SummerSlam. Yeah, dives yeah. through the platform thing. And right, into an ordinary drinking glass. Observe. Look, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's that's the thing. It's like we're not shitting on him for it. We're shitting right. on the theft of the idea as a whole. Yeah. And and where it was placed in in this. Um, right. So we have that storyline going on where Shane is proving himself to Vince, et cetera. Um, we have the catatonic Linda McMahon, the most important piece of this. Who has been made to suffer the abuse at the hands of Vince over these months, flaunting his affairs and not caring and wants a divorce. And mm. all of a sudden, at a pivotal moment, when Vince is about to massacre Shane with a garbage can, well, it got a lot of use that can, didn't it? <laughs> and he's going to hit Shane over the top of the head. Linda rises from her wheelchair in a moment <laughs> where the audience is supposed to go, yeah, nobody gives a shit. She kicks <laughs> Vince in the grapefruit. 
who cares? Sit down, Linda. We want to see more of Trish Stratus tits, and we want to see Shane McMahon fall off a high precipice. Yeah, like this match is everything where anybody who ego bashes the McMahons, which we can go to last episode where it was a McMahon in every corner. Yeah. It continues to this point, and like, just fuck off. Just speaking fuck of off. which, speaking of just fuck off, what happens when we take six men and don't give them any parameters and a lot of bric-a-brac and say, try to outdo what you've done twice already? Oi. <laughs> this is goddamn mad. I watched this with my kid. I, I told Jones, you gotta come. Like, Jonas, you like it when wrestlers nearly kill themselves. Come here, let's watch this together. And he loved it. He thought it was fantastic. But then he, he like me, likes to see idiots mutilate themselves. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. His reaction at the end of this match was he looked at me and he was like, this was fun. And I enjoy spending time with you, father. But these are the most dumbass people I've ever seen. Who does this crap? And then he went to go play a Switch. And that to me is the is, is I know everyone just jerks off to this sort of thing. Like there's an just an entire generation of wrestling fans who think this is the height of the art form. Yeah, it's not. Please it's not. let's not kid ourselves here. There, there, these are the two schools of wrestling fans of what things are great on. There's the mm -hmm. Angle Benoit school, and there's the Demolition Derby with Human Bodies TLC school. Mm -hmm. And me just growing up in the era I did, and being a very uh, I guess uh, traditional wrestling fan uh, in a lot of ways. I'm always more leaning on the side of Angle Benoit type stuff than I am on this side of stuff, even though right. I can appreciate it when it's done well and those things in the scheme of things matter. When you have a table spot that matters and really plays into things, like I'll, I'll always cite the example of how Bret Hart and Kevin Nash did their table spot at Survivor Series, where that was a holy shit moment where a guy took an insane bump through a table at the time, and it wasn't something done for spectacle where it was done 30 more times in the match. Right. That one table spot means more than pretty much 99% of the spots in this match put together. To his credit, and, and you're going to hate that I'm going to say this, and you're going to argue with me, but that's fine. That's what we're here for. At least when Foley went hither and yon off the cage, we hadn't seen it before. Not quite that way. Not hurled off to his doom. Yeah. No, I, I can agree with that. You know, and that, that's the difference. But here's the funny part of that whole thing. If you'll remember, Vince, Vince approaches Foley backstage never again. And now we're at TLC. Yeah, I, I see your point. It's just like, you know, it, even but even like the uh, the last man standing match at the Royal Rumble, like Vince, what did you, Vince? Do I have your approval? Eh, we'll see how the ratings do. Even, <laughs> even what an asshole thing to say to somebody. But yeah, like let's let's see you get concussed and beaten by all hell with a chair in the in head, in front of your wife and kids, even. Yeah, and and then <laughs> hey, by the way, let's uh, let's do this thing where you get handcuffed and do it again the next year, and yeah, 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 it just goes but, on but, and on. But again, like we're talking about these three teams specifically who have been married to each other for almost, you know, two years at this point, right. almost exclusively with minor, you know, appearances from, you know, the APA and Too Cool and the Hollies along the way. Um, you know, and it all kicked off with that ladder match between the Hardys and Edge and Christian. Right. And, you know, those guys, that ladder match is a work of art. It really yeah. is. Those guys work their tails off, made spots happen in that match with those ladder where they meant something. It wasn't it's just. It seemed organic. It was something that Jim Cornette talks about, and me and my son were laughing hysterically at, was if you look at the ladder match with, with, with Edge and Christian, those guys are having a wrestling match. There happens to be a ladder there. As opposed to, we have to build, you know, these massive bits of construction, you know, these set pieces for us to fall into. Yeah. And my son even, you know, Jim Cornette's like, why would you stop in the middle of a, of a blood feud brawl? To build a collection of tables to fall neatly into, and my to, son even picked up. He's fucking eight, man, and he's yeah, even why like, are we why? playing? Why are we playing a rector set? When, yeah, uh, 
trying to do this. Uh, like he, do you know how many times he yelled, go for the title, everyone's dead? Meanwhile, there's Bubba Ray Dudley building, you know... <laughs> the the building four stack in, of tables, yeah. <laughs> he's building an Eiffel Tower of tables. It's ridiculous. But, like, this is, this is just excess for the sake of excess. Mm-hmm. And, again, I know people look fondly on this match and think this was the greatest time ever. Yeah. If you want a microcosm of the hotshot booking of this era... This is what it is. We're just going to continually build these dangerous, stupid ideas and spots until there's nowhere else we can go but down from here. Right. And it's just, I'm not going to shit on any of the guys who were involved in this because I'm sure they were constructed and told, hey, remember when you did this? We need something better than that. Right. And it's like, well, shit, you know, what do you want us to do here? And they take massive, insane, and stupid risks throughout this thing. I think this is the one where Jeff Hardy tried to walk across three ladders and couldn't get it done. Yeah, he tries to do the ladder tippy-toe spot, which is just like, Jesus, like, what? It's what? amazing uh-huh. that it didn't end worse than it did. It's amazing yeah. that no one doesn't die in those things. They yeah. are, you know, well, it's, look, look, at, all- look at the long-term ramifications of these things where yeah. Edge you know, gets taken out, ends his career prematurely until very recently. But the guy missed, you know, let's call it 10 years of his prime because of the stuff from these matches. Yep. Jeff develops a horrible painkiller addiction that spirals into other things and takes a lot of years away from his prime. Mm -hmm. Christian, who undoubtedly got concussed at least once or twice during these things, because of future concussions, has to retire in his prime, misses about 10 years of his career. You know, the Dudleys come out of this largely unscathed because they were not expected to take these same bumps that the other guys did. Right. But let's not act like they didn't take their share of bumps and bruises during these things and no. took a while to recover from, too. Well, I mean, B- Bubba takes the least amount of damage in any of these matches, but he's also a big fat guy and there's he's giving the half of them. There's the thing. He has, he has mm-hmm. a body that's a little more capable right. of taking these types of things than the other guys. It's always, we'll bring up McFoley again. Mm-hmm. Foley had a body that was able to sustain this amount of punishment because of his build. Whereas JT Smith and ECW who loved and idolized him, tried to do the same things and broke his leg and ended his career. Right. And you now, but look at the spot that ends this thing with Devon where edge, you know, spears him midair. I mean, that's a hard fall to take on your back. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of these matches are guys falling on their sides and their heads and their legs. He takes a flat back bump from a 12 foot ladder after a guy tackled him. Ouch. Or Devon, who again is, you know, not a, a big fat guy like Bubba Ray, but he's meaty enough that he could absorb the impact. But it's not it's not a good day at the office. And then, like you said, then there's the other guys who are all, you know, falling on their heads. And look what it did to poor Matt Hardy. He went crazy and, you know, and became a lunatic for there for a while. I'm not playing that entirely. Pat, Pat is your camera frozen? I think Pat either got disconnected or he froze. Um, Let's go ahead and wait for him to come back. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move on here. I hope Pax is able to come back and join us. Um, All right. So next we have, ah, yes, the gimmick battle royal, which is always fun. Uh, That that one is just, it's just hilarity. I remember watching it live and I I have fond memories of this. Um, I've heard Jim Cornette tell the story of him and Bruce Pritchard grabbing each other and <laughs> punching each other in the eye, apparently. Um, this is one by the Iron Sheet because he's the only one there who can't take a bump, but then I think he gets beat up by Sergeant Slaughter because we have to have a happy ending. It's fine. I think the only one that truly shocked me in terms of gimmicks, like really that, of, of, all, the, of all the silly gimmicks you could throw into this stupid match, you threw in the gobbledygooker? All right. Fair enough. Um, 
let's move on to the Undertaker versus Triple H. I I like this match. Um, I think you know not every Undertaker, uh, not every Undertaker Triple H match has been the uh, the best thing ever. But I think here it, I think here the two of them are young enough, work well enough, um, and have enough momentum to where uh, the Undertaker and Triple H put on a solid match at this show. One of the few that they'll do together because they both have their own separate issues in the ring. And then when you put them together, it's sometimes just terrible. But here, I think it's one of the better ones. What do you think, Pat? Sorry, I got disconnected there for a second. I, um, I know you did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, as far as Triple H Undertaker, the thing with this match is it's these are two guys who we've established as main event guys and we don't have anything for. Let's just throw them in together. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very minute buildup with the, the bike and stuff. And it's there. These are two guys who have to go all out again to try to get something uh, watchable. It, it kind of reminds me of Taker and Diesel to where it's like, well, you've wrestled there. Each of you collectively have wrestled everybody else in this company. You might as well wrestle each other now. Yeah. And, you know, it's not as though they hadn't worked together, whereas Taker mm-hmm. and Diesel hadn't worked together at this point. But the Triple H and Taker had, but in different iterations of those characters. Yeah. You know, we had the Greenwich Schnob Triple H work with the Dead Man, Purple Gloved Undertaker. But we never had them in this vein at this time where they're each right. – Triple H specifically is really peaking in his career at this point in time. And Taker is just coming back after a significant layoff. It's his first WrestleMania back, so it's in Houston, his backyard, as he likes to refer to it. Mm-hmm. Um. And here's here's the thing that hurts this match, and it's it's a shame because I think as a match, it's better than the previous two matches we just talked about with Vince and Shane and the the TLC match. They're doing stuff where you get that choke slam through that staging area, and so there's no collective point for the audience to kind of catch their breath off of these things mm-hmm. and kind of just reassess where this will make it more than what it was. And I think that hurts this match a little bit. And I do agree with you. I think it's of the WrestleMania matches they've had together. It's easily the best one. Mm-hmm. Both guys are physically much more capable at this stage than they are later. I um, think uh, I think I have a soft spot for the Hell in the Cell in Miami, but that might be because it was the end of an era, and I'm I was God help me, I was nostalgic. Yeah, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this one to me was their best match together. Um, I'm trying to think of other Undertaker versus Triple H matches as a whole. They're not really mm-hmm. something that occurred on a regular basis. I guess in the event that Triple H wanted to do something special with the Undertaker down the road, lo and behold. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's probably safe to say this is um oh, you know, there's the King of the Ring too. That's stunk. Um mm-hmm. this yeah, let's call this their best match together, uh, from my end anyway. Yeah. And it's a fine match. There's nothing really outrageously terrible about it. I would Triple say H- of, of the 20 some odd WrestleMania matches the Undertaker had, I think this is one of the better ones. I would absolutely venture to say it's one of his better WrestleMania matches. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's probably in, I hate to Bruce Pritchard it, but it's probably in the top five for sure. Um, yeah. But, but again, Triple H at this point in time is really peaking in terms of what he can do as a performer. And I think he gets uh, and deserves a lot of the credit for this. He bumped his ass off. Yeah. He took really the harder, more difficult spills in this one. And at the end, he really does everything he can to make The Undertaker look strong going forward. And I think he accomplished that. And I, while I tend to crap on these two guys fairly regularly, mm-hmm. um, Triple H in 90, end of 99 to this part until he gets hurt is really, really good. The Rock came into this company in 1996. It took this long, this long to be a bona fide main event 
superstar in his own right, whether Austin is there or not. Because yeah. the year before, they didn't have that much confidence in him. And the year before that, he was the top heel in the company, but Austin is the one that sells WrestleMania 15. Yeah. And then before that, it didn't matter. So from 1996 to 2001, five years. It takes five years to create from soup to nuts a bona fide main event in his own right, can sell a pay-per-view on just his name, Star, after Austin and The Undertaker. It's pretty amazing when you think about it and you put it in those terms. And this is the celebration of that. It's the really outside of maybe Goldberg, Austin and The Rock in 2001 are the two most popular bona fide superstars in all of pro wrestling. And they are meeting head to head on the biggest possible stage. You can set a wrestling event. That's fairly monumental. And I think that's why I wanted to spend uh, the two hours we're doing on just this one show, because I, I don't want to undersell how important it is in the history of WrestleMania matches. It's the Hogan Savage of this era. And it's the only time it ever really happens in, in, in that way. Much like Hogan and Savage. I mean, will they wrestle each other a dozen more times? Sure. Will, they also, will Austin and The Rock wrestle each other a dozen more times? Sure. But in terms of legacy, importance, um, the, again, WrestleMania 5, WrestleMania 17. Those are it. I mean, it's, it's up there in terms of like, the biggest main event you could put together at the time it's it's hogan andre you know and i'm sorry for running off again but i'm using zenwise green tea extract which is a great okay. non-gmo vegan friendly product that helps you with your digestive system helps you to extract all things from there helps burn belly fat it's a great product i highly recommend it hey speaking okay. of great products we're talking about the build to two of the biggest main event stars of all time essentially yeah and there's a great video package to it set to the song My Way by Limp Biscuit, And I, for the life of me, hadn't heard this song in a long time, but then I realized I had this product called Amazon Music, and I could listen to that song whenever I wanted if I hated myself and wanted to limp, listen to Limp Biscuit. But there's other songs on there I don't hate and I like to listen to a lot, Mark. That's true. There's over 70 million uh, songs you can stream on Amazon Music Unlimited. And as it turns out, Pat, I can help you with a 30-day free trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. Don't you understand? What? Absolutely, sir. You can click the link in this podcast right now while you're listening to us. It'll take you to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network. And you can fill out the information and take on a free 30-day trial of the Amazon Unlimited. And then you can listen to all the lip you want, and it won't cost you a thing. Go All break stuff, everybody. That's right. Give me something to break. Enjoy some hot dog flavored water and chocolate covered starfish. I, Pat, I, my wife knows this far too well, but for, but in case anyone doesn't understand, I do it all for the nookie. And so you can take that cookie and stick it up your yeah. Um, but you out there cannot stick it up your yeah, but instead, click <laughs> click the. Click the link in this podcast, get amazonmusic.com slash W2M network for your free 30-day trial of Amazon Music Unlimited. But I do like the I do like the comparison you made in these two guys to Hogan Savage, where yeah. you know Austin undeniably is the Hogan of the group, Rock is the Savage, where each guy didn't really get the opportunity in terms of Savage and the Rock to shine as a main event guy until the other guy went away for a little while. Right. And that's what happened. And 
I don't necessarily think it's the same in the case of, well, Savage proved he was just as good as Hogan in that sense. And, the, you know, he kept the ratings strong and kept the, the house show strong and everything for at least the year he was champion. Rock didn't maintain the same numbers as Steve Austin. It, it didn't happen. He didn't do bad numbers by any means. Mm-hmm. And I think he was the best candidate to fill in for him. You know, he, he, he became a pop culture presence. You know, he did a lot of the things you need a top guy to do and grow with. But I don't think it's deniable. And revisionist history likes to say that The Rock was as big a star as Steve Austin. And it's just not the case. And we lived through this era. We, mm-hmm. we were here through it. We followed it pretty religiously through the entire time. There was never a point in time where The Rock was an equal to Steve Austin in terms of the star power. It just wasn't. There's always an A side and a B side to your top guys generally. You know, you have your, your Bruno and your Pedro. You're Hogan and you're Savage, you're Austin and you're Rock, and there's always an A side and a B side to those guys. Mm-hmm. And that's not knocking them. You know, there's a million guys who would love to be the B side of that. Triple H would have loved to be the B side. The Undertaker would love to be the B side, but they're not. The Rock was. Yeah. So that brings us to this match. This is this is less a wrestling match and more of an action yeah. movie. Um, I also think this the one thing that I think works against this WrestleMania is a little too long. And then on top, and then when you have not one, but two, but three or four. Yeah, Zooks, garbage. wait a minute, Mark. Before we get here, we didn't talk about my favorite match of the show. Oh, I did. You may have been off the air. You've talked about the gimmick battle royal. I didn't royal. get to expound my love and virtues of the gimmick battle royal. Please take a moment and do that. So what we had here was an idea to bring back some of the most familiar, beloved faces of the past and have them engage in a battle royal Hosted and commentated over by Gene Okerlund and Bobby the Brain Heenan. That's truly the delight of this entire show. It's the it, honestly, this show was dragging for me. It, yeah. Even as a viewer, a loyal viewer in the eighth grade watching this show, all my friends are into it. We're all watching it. And mm. I'm just kind of sitting here like, meh. Mm. I hear Tutti Fruity come up and I see Mean Gene and Bobby make their way down to the ring to call the action for the gimmick battle royal. And I'm just freaking out, overjoyed, because know. it's not just Mean Gene and Bobby. And I we right. had just seen Mean Gene and Bobby in WCW the year right. prior. But we're seeing them in the WWF. And they couldn't have been happier. They loved it. Yeah. They're calling a match with guys who I heard them call matches with 10 years ago with names like Earthquake, Sergeant Slaughter, The Iron Sheik, Hillbilly mm-hmm. Jim. And the two of them together, just they have no loss of chemistry between them as they call the action. Yep. It's hilarious. I mean, and here's the thing if you're having fun, the audience has fun with you. And Bobby Heenan and Gene Oakland were like glowing. They they were just so happy to be there. And and look, I'm sure they have individually and collectively have had their problems with the WWE. Who hasn't? It's a big company with a story history. They really didn't, though. And that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They, They didn't leave on bad terms by any means. When they left, mm-hmm. and and I think that's part of the big thing of why they were so happy to be back is mm-hmm. they were there. They they you know loved it while they were there. They went to the other company in WCW, and especially towards the end, they were just so maligned and broken mm-hmm. down and not caring about what went on because it wasn't fun for them anymore. Right now they're back, and probably even more so than the negotiate when they actually get there the day of and they see mm-hmm. the faces and they see the crowd and they. There's that feeling in them like, hey, we're back where we belong for a night. And yeah. let's ride this thing for all it's worth. No, I, I agree with you. And that, that's – I. I'll, I'll take your word for it. They probably didn't have a major issue with the company. I think what I was more saying was 
to be in the WWE, especially when it was the traveling roadshow that it used to be, hey, look, anyone, it's going to break anyone down. Yeah. But to go away and come back and feel like, ah, I'm home again, and to just do the one match and have so much fun with it, like, that's my point. It, it came through, even 20 some odd years later, it came through the screen how much fun they're having. And I loved it that much more for that reason. Also, Bobby the Brain Heenan. The line got, of the night. God, God rest his soul, is the funniest man in wrestling in the history of wrestling. He's he, he, he has the line of the night that everybody mm -hmm. remembers from this show. And mm -hmm. it's in the gimmick battle royal. This mm -hmm. is the one line that I always everybody always remembers. And when they hear it, they all pop still, even if they don't remember it. By the time the Iron Sheet gets to the ring, it'll be WrestleMania 38. <laughs> and here we are. All right. So back to Austin Rock. Um do we have to? I think we just hit the high notes and well, we're we're all, we're literally at two <laughs> hours, so I don't think I'm gonna spend that much time on this. Here's what I'm gonna tell you. Um, I talk a lot on Damn You Hollywood with Robert about, you know, we, we talked about this with Uncharted, which is a which is a dandy little movie if you don't think about it at all. You know, if you're just watching two hours of jingling keys and sexy, you know, sexy men with sexy abs and sexy women with sexy boobs. It's fine. It's, it, it is perfectly serviceable and adequate if you know nothing else about this product. Um, and that's kind of what The Rock and Austin felt like to me. This was almost no psychology to it. Almost. Had a little bit. Like, bare minimum. Like, just enough. Just, it's just enough of a plot thread here to get you from point A to point B. But yeah. it is just like, we know we have a stadium full of people. We know that, that no one's looking for Regal versus uh, Ultimo Dragon. They want car chases and explosions and jingling keys and bric-a-brac so that that's what we're going to give them that, i mean to to their credit to their credit they knew the assignment they knew the audience and they delivered 110 percent. i don't they, love it but i know what it is and they knew what it is and that's why it is what it is and they still try to fit some wrestling into here like oh, they you try know, they try like you know they do they do the spot where Steve Austin puts on the million dollar dream mm -hmm. and The Rock does the turnbuckle escape a la Bret Hart who got one yeah. over on Austin but Austin this time is smart enough to let go of the hold mm -hmm. you know they do the sharpshooter spot you know harkening back yeah. to WrestleMania 13 as fucking it's, horrible it's as a the journey Rock concert is. It, it's a journey concert it is we're gonna play all the play hits the that hits. everybody love that everyone loves you know. And, and then, then when they break out the new song, it stinks in the audience booze. <laughs> yup. Uh, that that would be the finish of this match, guys. Yeah. So I, Look, there were two things I wanted to touch on really quick. Um, and one of them is the 87 different false finishes in this match. Because it's become, it has become ingrained in the culture now. This like, Everyone goes back to this like, oh my God, how great Austin and Rock and uh, WrestleMania 17 is for the 906 false finishes and doing each other's moves that now everybody does. Yeah. Like, like if someone says you have to put on a four star match, okay, I'm going to do everything Austin and The Rock did. Except that when it's done a hundred times by everybody wrestling from a gym to a stadium, it, it might lose just a little bit of its effect. And I, I didn't love the effect of it here. I didn't love it as an active viewer at the time, even because I think it went too right. far overboard at the time. No, it goes, it goes ridiculous. It, Thelma and Louise is pretty badly. But that's me through the eyes of, you know, a, a mm. 14 year old boy at the time who this is pretty much geared towards. Like, yeah. this is supposed to be everything you want. And I'm watching it. And granted, I'm probably a bigger 14 year old wrestling nerd than most at the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. But even I'm like, okay, enough's enough already with this. Yeah. Like, where, where are we going with this? Okay, kick out of a stunner, kick out of a rock bottom, kick out of the people's elbow. It, like, come on. So, the other thing is... Um, and if we didn't get enough Vince... Well, yeah, I mean, this is, again, look, 
So you're sitting there and you're watching porn and it's and it's fantastic and it's all the positions you like and it's the girls you like and the boys you like and it's all fantastic. And then at the end, one of them just cuts the other one's head off and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what happened here? I I was watching one thing and you then this turned, happened. turned into a National Geographic documentary on praying mantises. <laughs> yeah, like I don't, I don't, what? And that is Austin, who after an 87-year feud with Vince McMahon, who said, I don't want you as champion, you bald, redneck, nonsense person, says, for no good reason, turns his back on The Rock, and they join forces. And when you listen to them talk about it in interviews, like, ah, we had to do something with Austin. Did you? (laughs) Had we we run that train too far? I, I mean... You couldn't get another year out of him, or we couldn't build towards this in some way that made any kind of logical sense. There was nobody else we could involve him with and, and, and yeah. do something different with. There was nothing we could think of at the time. Nothing. Yeah. I, this is uh, ugh, what a I'll canary in the coal mine moment. I'll also laugh at this. The color often gets in this match is somewhat reminiscent of Brett, mm. where he's just got that full face of blood. Yeah. The rock gets juiced too early. Mm hmm. But where he cuts himself is right up on his then very receding hairline. <laughs> and it bleeds a little bit. doesn't bleed a lot. And the reason being is because he's about to film The Scorpion King and you can't have no scar tissue on a Hollywood man. You could have right. fucking been a man rock and taken some Advil or some Jack Daniels before this so you really would have bled out more. But what do I know? So the point being that... I am with the people who say WrestleMania 17 is, at, if not in the top five, at least in the top 10. It's a solid show from beginning to end. It is definitely the height of what was going on in the era. It has a legacy that we, of which we've been talking the past few hours about. All of that is true. Ruined at the end by this ending. Just utterly, this is the ill get off me at the end of good sex moment. It's just awful. I, I can't stand it. See, and again, we've talked about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't like the Attitude Era. Yeah. I don't. I, I didn't like a lot of it, what was going on because you had three to four minute TV matches at most mm-hmm. and a lot of car crash shit that you knew eventually, like, how can they top this? It's just going to keep going cyclical on this until it stops. And this show is is the very definition of that whole era put into one show where, you know, let's get everybody on the show on. Let's get everybody doing something. Everybody needs to be hit with a chair or a fire extinguisher or dive through a table onto the floor off of a ladder. And we need constant McMahon, McMahon interference, I'll call it. Uh, and we need a little bit of blood. And we'll give you one really great wrestling match on it, maybe two. Mm-hmm. And that's why I hate this era. And I'm this show is the end of that. And it's funny. And I wanted to bring this up and personalize a little bit. So I'm in the eighth grade at the time. You know, you're getting ready to go to high school and all that stuff. This show was pretty much the end of fandom for 90% of the people I knew who watched wrestling. I could see that. They, they like afterward, nobody really gave a shit for a long time because it was just like, okay, well, that happened. And now what are we watching? And it was, you know, the next few months until the invasion technically starts are not really great television because they're spinning their wheels at what to do. You have, you know, paranoid, psychotic Steve Austin, the two man mm. power trip thing, which. They never really get any kind of comeuppance in any meaningful way until it's way too late. Mm. You have The Undertaker and Kane as, and as your de facto one and two baby faces. And it's like, you know, I like Kane. The Undertaker can go fucking take a leap. And it's just the writing is very bland. The action is terrible unless you're involving Angle Benoit or the Hardys and Edge and Christian and Dudley's trying to kill each other with various plunder. Um, 
And then they try to get creative and do they try to do a light heavyweight division again, but they don't understand what made the WCW light heavyweight division great is what you're doing with Edge Christian and the Hardy Boys and Dudleys right now. The car crash aspect of it where they're breaking all this shit out you've never seen before. And it, it gets very bad and it gets worse and worse until it gets better. You know, 2000, early 2002, I think, is kind of the, the come up on a lot of we've been doing this. We need to kind of focus here. But a lot of that bad shit's still present then. Yeah. So that's it. That is the mania of WrestleMania 17 next month. Um, I have the schedule actually in front of me. I've learned now. Um, first, Pat will be back on March 10th. We had to put this off because Pat had some um, personal business. So we're going to get to Chapter 8. We're going to do Hagler versus Hearns. And then on March 23rd, we're going to do the Mania of WrestleMania 18 and 19, which is the Invasion and the Rise of Brock Lesnar. Um, March 31st is Hagler versus Leonard. And then we end things finally April 6th. This is a, a part of our two-week celebration of all things WrestleMania. We are ending this series. We are done. Over. Kaput. Uh, we are ending with the Mania of WrestleMania 20 finale of this uh, over year-long series that we started here looking at the history of WrestleMania matches, which I've had a really good time with. And we'll have to figure out what we're going to do next when it's all said and done. But that's it. That's the plan. We have two more of these left. Um, WrestleMania 18 and 19 on March 23rd. And then WrestleMania, uh, WrestleMania 20. But I will. But hey, Pat, I'm never done with Pat. There's always something else cooking. We've obviously got more boxing coming up. But hey, Pat pitched me a while back. He was, you know, in, in one of his uh in, in, in one of his staycations at home where he was watching TV and and uh and reliving some of his favorite shows, he started watching Oz and, <laughs> <laughs> and flooded our personal chat with his remembrances of a show once loved and said, We need to talk about this. So we're gonna spend an hour an hour uh talking about our favorite moments from the show oz and that'll be uh april april 14th on my calendar at the moment and not and not that's not all last thing pat doesn't always pitch me a new show pat doesn't like a lot of new tv or much, really of, don't. much of anything new these days but he still likes hillary duff and hillary duff's in a show that nobody likes called how i met your father which despite that has been renewed for a second season on hulu so we're going to review season one of How I Met Your Father on April 25th. And that's all the plugs I have for Pat for now. Um, in the meantime, da, da, da. Uh, later on tonight, I've got more shows. I got a rescheduled show from Sunday, which we didn't do because I lost power. Uh, it'll be myself and Jason Teasley reviewing Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X's Oof. Old Boy. Shut up, Pat. Um, and before that, we've got The Metal Hammer of Doom. We'll be reviewing Halo by the band Amorphous. Uh, Amorphous. Tomorrow... Like an amorphous, uh, like a blob? Amorphous, yes. Um, Alexis Haina will be providing a lecture that I will be present for about the history of animation and Cuphead Season 1. And then when that's, all back, she'll, when that's all done, she'll come back later on in the evening with the Protocol son, Jason Teasley, and we'll be reviewing Peacemaker Season 1. Uh, Friday, we have a re-airing of Allegion, Apoptosis, um, We'll be re-airing our discussion of The Wire from Everyone Loves a Bad Guy a few years ago. And then Saturday night, it's all right for fights, if you ask me. Um, we've got the Everyone Loves a Bad Guy for Batman Rogues Villains from a few years ago. And we've and myself and Robert Winfrey, whether he remembers it or not, will be doing an alternative commentary for Chris Colbert versus Hector Luis Garcia on Showtime, which is a super featherweight WBA eliminator now since uh, Robert Gutierrez got the COVID. 
Yep. That's it. That's all for me. Thanks. I'm driving. Pat, you got anything? Nope. Death taxes and Hillary Duff. The only certainties in life. Indeed. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Mania of WrestleMania. For Pat Mullen, I'm Mark Radlich. Be well, be safe, and behave.